This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Happy Friday. It's Friday. I don't know. Get excited. This is, you know, for for many people, you're wrapping up the week. Get tomorrow off, mow the lawn, have a little barbecue, and others just have to go to work. It's not fair. But you know what? we got a great show for you today. And uh, we will be getting into, you know, of course, the headlines, all things uh, going on in the headlines. Of course, we will also be celebrating Flip-Flop Day. Flippity-flop, flippity-flop. So, in Hawaii, they're actually called slippers. Oh, they call them slippers in Hawaii? Yeah. Uh, we, we flip-flops because they make a flip-flopping sound. That's why we celebrate flip-flops on this day. They're worn throughout the world. We used to call them other names we can't mm. use anymore. Yes. <sighs> Terms have been co-opted. Mm-hmm. Are, are they really not allowed to... What do you mean? Because I was talking to somebody... Two days ago. Your parole officer? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> um, What'd they say? Just about how they're called slippers. And she's like, no, 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 no. They're called they're called flip-flops. I'm like, okay. Well, yeah. they've also been called other things. Yeah. So it's a slippery slope if you start calling them. Anything else? Then slippers, yeah. Yeah. Let's just call them flip-flops because it's flip-flop day. Let's don't complicate things. You know what else it is? It's apple strudel day. Mm. Apple strudel. Um, and... There's a special way to say apple strudel. Yeah. In Germany. That's kind of why I grabbed this one. We have a How do you say alleged expert in the Germanic languages? How do you say I don't uh, prove ap- to be any kind of expert? Okay, how do you say it in German? Apfelstrudel. <laughs> nope. Not even close. Do you think that wasn't even close? I I have no idea. Apfelstrudel. No. I mean I've got an ear for languages. So so how do you say it? Apple strudel. That's like a Pop-Tart. Pop-Tarts are great. I like Pop-Tarts. That's how you say like an apple strudel Pop-Tart. I don't know that I've ever had a really good apple strudel. Really? But again, I haven't been to Germany. Well, I, I had – Or a, Austria or – One time I I ate an Apfelstrudel. <laughs> yeah? Right across the street from the church building – the Von Trapps from The Sound of Music. You mean the Von Trapps? The Von Trapps. Yeah, the Von Trapps. Um, like he's got a little where, lisp halfway through there. Yeah. Where, <laughs> where they got married. So. Did you really? So yeah. in the movie, The Church, mm-hmm. you had an apple strudel while looking at the church, basically. Yeah. So I ate the apple strudel. And what was that? The apple strudel. It doesn't sound right. It's like he has a marble in there yeah. or something. And then we walked over to the church. Mm-hmm. Did you sing? Did you sing? A song? Um, I I think it was. It was probably close. Yeah. They didn't well, no, you. no. I I went in. You know, he walked down the street going doe, a deer. A, you know what? It is? <laughs> yeah. Come on. It oh, was actually man. more Edelweiss. <laughs> oh. See, it does sound beautiful when you say it. German is it's a beautiful language when it's spoken appropriately and, and correctly. Yeah, I was waiting for that. <laughs> 
We will be talking about the internet too, by the way. Internet access rights. Like, is it, is it a right now? Like, do you have the right to have internet? Or is it kind of just, you know, it's just a nice thing? It's frequently brought up in uh, State of the Union addresses that we need to increase access because it brings opportunity. Yeah. And you hear companies, we've talked about it before, where Facebook was trying to get into uh, areas like in India because they, they feel that if you give internet access, you're going to help people raise their station in life. Right. I mean, now, the education, contro- training. The controversy there is Facebook is giving out a phone that gives you access only to Facebook. Yeah, see the trick. <laughs> and they're like, oh, that little, seems a little self-serving and not as, you know, like you're trying to help people. Yeah, so you don't you don't know if it's just companies trying to sell you something or is this really it's is it is it a necessity now? Is it like a utility like water and gas or should it be? And, and should it be? Hmm. The reality is 40% in inner cities like Detroit, 40% of residents have no internet service at all. And it's not that they can't get it. Like you could get Comcast, it's just you can't afford it. So, but then these people can't go online and even fill out a a job application because so many of them are online. So we'll be talking about that. Internet access, is it a... Is that a right? Is it a privilege? What is it? And uh, and what should it be? Well, it, we've got an interesting discussion coming up about that. Plus headlines, plus a lot of just fun stories. We'll probably do a little flushing of the news as well throughout the day, getting rid of the stories that uh, you probably don't even need to hear, but we've we've got them archived. So we'll get to all of this. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Thanks, Matt. The memorial services for the 49 people murdered at Pulse Nightclub Orlando began Wednesday night with a visitation for Javier Jorge Reyes, 40 years old. On Thursday, funerals were held for four other victims. On Friday, friends and loved ones will bury Anthony Luis Leonardo de Silla, 25 years old. The funerals are expected to continue for two weeks. Both large public ceremonies and small private services will be held. Bernie Sanders did not concede the Democratic nomination to presumptive nominee Hillary Clinton in an address to supporters Thursday night. He did not formally endorse Clinton either, but rather said he will continue to work with her on issues prior to the Democratic National Convention in July. Sanders also reiterated that he wants to do everything in his power to defeat Donald Trump. So nothing changed. Uh, Another question is being asked. Is Donald Trump running for president simply as a means of launching his own cable news network? Oh, brother. That is a theory put forth by Vanity Fair, quoting anonymous sources close to the situation. They're always anonymous. They're always close. (laughs) According to the report, the presumptive GOP nominee is eyeing the possibility of launching his very own media company, possibly a cable news network, after discovering just how powerful a hold he can have on the news cycle. According to several people briefed on the discussions, the presumptive Republican nominee is examining the opportunity presented by the, quote, audience, currently supporting him. He has also discussed the possibility of launching a mini-media conglomerate outside of his existing TV production business, Trump Production LLC. Trump's rationale, according to this anonymous source, is that win or lose, we are onto something here. We've triggered a base of the population that hasn't had a voice for a long time. Sources told Vanity Fair that Trump's interest in creating his own media empire grew out of his frustration over his ability to create revenue for other media organizations without being able to take a cut himself. He's oh. asked multiple times to be paid for, and then he changed it to be kind of a donation right, to a charity right, to go to these right. debates. Just run for president. Flip. Come on. Extend the brand. Come on. You're not here to create a new business opportunity Um, or sell steaks. In other news, police in New York's Long Island arrested a man Thursday whose home was found to store bomb-making instructions, assault rifles, and a portrait of Adolf Hitler 
and $40,000 in cash. The man identified as 29-year-old Edward Perwiski faces weapons charges for the arsenal, as well as drug charges for marijuana and psychedelic mushrooms. Wow. Suffolk County police said they believe they may have prevented an Orlando-style mass shooting by this guy, noting that they had neutralized a clear public threat. He was described by fellow residents as perpetually being in trouble with the law. Yeah. Wow. Dodged a bullet there. And, you know, shrooms. Shrooms. And other drugs and guns and bombs and... And it was eventful last night. The Cleveland, Cleveland Cavaliers oh, beat the Warriors. Crazy. Game six. That mm-hmm. was, what, 115-101. So game seven is Sunday. LeBron had like 27 straight points or something. Something like that. What is that about? There was a... Uh, Who woke LeBron up? Yeah. Well, I think he's been... Uh, there's been name-calling between the two teams yeah. in the media, and I think that kind of maybe yeah. set him off. It's getting It's getting ugly. So at the end of the game, Steph Curry the, yeah. from the Warriors got mad. He was he fouled. Well, they called it a foul. I don't know if it was a foul, but they called a foul. He uh, was ejected. So I think it's the first time he's been ejected all season. He then threw his mouthpiece, hit a fan, and then goes over and apologizes Sorry. and everything, and then walks off the court. Yeah. But as he walks off the court, him and LeBron sort of trades and comments lip, lip, lip. and stuff. So the question is, you throw something and hit a fan. Yeah, is there a fine? No, that fan's going to make like fifty grand on that mouthpiece. Well, he gave it back. Why? Because, I mean, it's gross. It's like no, slower. give me the mouthpiece. So in the past, guy, people that have thrown things and hit fans, about $25,000 fine. Really? So, well, well, he should get a twenty. He may, he should be fine, but they're saying he may not. He may be kicked out of the seventh game. I really, you can't kick him out of the seventh game of the biggest series. Two other incidents similar to this, people were not suspended. They were simply fined. Do you remember when Ben threw his mouth guard? Yeah. We his had, headgear and his retainer? Now, after the game. The more dramas with his wife on Twitter. What did she throw? Not, well, oh, okay. comments back and forth. Uh, Aisha Curry tweets that the NBA Finals are rigged after Steph Curry was ejected. She says she uh, she's not sure if it's rigged for money or if it's rigged for ratings, but this is oh. absolutely rigged. She later said that she posted the comment in the heat of the moment. Interesting. Because he also got called on that reaching foul on Kyrie Irving earlier he in did. the game that looked kind of clean. Yeah, on, and on replay, he it, yeah, it, it did. Was, there were, that happens both ways. After the game, his coach said three of his fouls were complete jokes, were so, completely so, uncalled. So for. they're like claiming like you're rigging it. You held what's his name out of game five. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're building drama so we can get to mm, a game seven. Whatever this, it is, it's working. They're saying this has to be lucrative. This has to be. I mean, ratings are huge on. Yeah, this, this is. Earlier in the evening, uh, Aisha Curry said the Cavs security racially profiled her dad, who was on the Warriors' friends and family bus. Security thought he looked like a guy who has repeatedly gotten through security at big events. Her dad? Her father <laughs> looked like this other guy the NBA was looking for. Yeah. So they stopped him, checked his credentials, and sent him on through. She claimed he was racially profiled. Oh, boy. Situation was cleared up. but And then also, the friends and family bus for the Warriors. Yeah. That wasn't allowed to get into the underground parking to let everyone out because uh, they said they were held. It was like 10 minutes before tip-off, and they were still sitting on the bus. Hello. And so she's like, this is a great tactic by the Cavaliers. Yeah. It's probably racial profiling. The Cavaliers say that uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce were their, – their whole caravan was in there. So they got in. Oh, we were waiting out, for Jay-Z. Waiting for them to process and get through there so they get the bus in. And it took some time. You got to get your nachos. You got to get your Twizzlers. The best thing about the finals is there's so much going on that every little thing could be a slight mm. 
or just coincidence. Yeah. You don't know. Just yeah, maybe it's just how life works. Man. Yeah. I couldn't get in today because there was construction workers just backed up here in the building. No, outside. No. Just waiting. Were they doing it on purpose? Yeah. I wonder just... if it's they're like profiling me, white man. It's one of driving. Our, is it a middle aged man? <laughs> is it a competing BYU radio show trying to derail yeah. the show here? Uh-huh. Is that what it is? It's Julie Rose. Wow. Yeah, I, I suspected top of mind. <laughs> they're after me, man. They're trying to kill me. Hey, um, that's crazy. Nah, they're not. Did you hear the USA versus Ecuador? No, I was watching a basketball game. Um, the United States is now one win away from the Copa America final. This is history, apparently. It's a big deal. Clint Dempsey scored the game's first goal, and the Americans tacked on another one midday, midway through the second half. Ecuador had a late goal. Bada boom, bada bing, but it wasn't enough. Mm. U.S. soccer went crazy. They're in the sem- semifinals. That's cool. Drama. Total drama. Speaking of drama, um, how do I say this? English. I was going to try German. Okay. Well, you my, know, your choice. I'll, I'll cut you through it, Matt. Will you, will you walk me through it? Um, yesterday, I'm listening to MSNBC mm-hmm. as they interview uh, Bernie Sanders' um, campaign manager. Okay. He's an older, balding gentleman. Yeah, I was listening, hmm. so I didn't see that. Just saying, it's just, you know. But it seems like Bernie, one of his concessions to Hillary is you got to boot Deborah Wasserman Schultz. Yeah, he wants her out. Get her out of here. Yeah, he's, he has a real problem with her. Oh, and he stated, she's and I, the head I haven't of the, seen it. The Democratic National yeah. Committee, right? And she's one that he thinks kind of propped up the Clinton campaign and, and, and did all of this. And so he wants her gone. And I guess they've had some announcements, but I can't find it. But he said it on MSNBC that it looks like um, she is going to be removed and, and, and no longer be doing the day-to-day administrative functions. Mm. But not removed, but she'll yeah. still be in a figurehead position, but not doing the administrative role. And I didn't know what that meant, and he didn't know what it meant, but he insinuated it was a win. she's on her way out. Okay. And I'm thinking, holy cow. He's unseating a handpicked person from Obama to get out of there. Maybe she's like the vice president. She simply shows up to the the events and shakes hands. And waves. (laughs) Anyway, I thought that was crazy, which is weird, too, because that's not – that can't be the only thing he wants. No, he has multiple requests, but that's probably the most dramatic one. But did you just say it? He's not – he didn't give up. No. He's not not conceding. He's waiting until Hillary is cleared by the FBI. Mm Mm-hmm. Until she's cleared, we're not clear. So that even, you know, that just makes it more exciting. So not only the GOP are in trouble, maybe the Dems are just a little infighting as well, even though they know who they're, they know who the, they know who, who butters their bread. They know who, who brings him the, the cashola. Well, I shouldn't probably connect Clinton to cash. Come on. We're going to um, take a break. When we come back, we're talking internet, folks. Is it a right I mean, really, is it a right now? Is it something that every every American should have access to the Internet? We'll be talking about it, and uh, it's an interesting discussion. You can't do anything today without uh, having some access to the Internet. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, constant access to the Internet has almost become a necessity in everyday life. We've grown dependent on instant information and the, you know, the ease of life that it provides us. However, in many major U.S. cities, there's a glaring inequality in Internet access. This divide is preventing many Americans from creating a better future for themselves. And according to our next guest, uh, Bill Callahan, director of Connect Your Community, we aren't just facing a technical problem, but rather a civil rights issue. Bill joins us now to tell us more about the challenges many citizens face as they strive to survive in this digital age. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks for being with us. Morning, Matt. Thanks for the opportunity. This uh, is an interesting um, idea for me because... It seems like, it, you know, Internet started out as a convenience, you know, as as a it's almost like it felt like at first it was just a, a means to entertainment. But it's grown into something that is becoming, you know, a major deliverer of, of uh, news and information, but also of education, of um, of training and even of, you know, uh, getting and obtaining a job. Is that why you're saying this is a civil rights issue? Yeah, the it isn't just that it's becoming a major uh, medium for all those purposes and a lot of others. It's in many cases it's becoming the default medium and effectively the only medium. So mm. if you look at the um, the issue of, of job application, and this is something that people started noticing probably five years ago, it is at this point almost impossible to apply for most jobs other than online. Uh, the Somebody who is now 35 or 40 or, or you know, a little older, um, 10 years ago might have been very experienced and competent at uh, kind of seeking out jobs in a newspaper or even on, um, you know, uh, other kinds of places, right. including personal referrals. Um and, um, you know, finding a personnel office, making a phone call, you know, putting in an application, doing a good interview, um, all those things that used to be the process of looking for work, in a, you know, for somebody who was just in the job market. At this point, that's become almost irrelevant. The only way to find jobs is online. The only way to apply for jobs is online. Uh, I'm not talking here about um, coding jobs. I'm talking about right. jobs. I'm talking about, um, you know, if you go to... A Target store, I assume Target's uh, in Utah. Yeah, you bet. And right, and um, uh, I mean, Target makes it a little easier than most because they have the computer terminals for applicants in their store. <laughs> right. But, uh, but um, if you don't happen to be close to the store and you're looking for work, you're not going to be able to find a way to apply for a you know a nine dollar an hour job at Target uh, without getting online. So that's an example, and yeah. in many ways, the extreme example. Uh, but a very important one, obviously. Well, plus, uh, plus just literacy, right? Like you, you've got to be computer literate, and if you if you don't spend hours online uh, and and searching and reading and and learning how to use all of the technology, you're getting behind in a technological era, and that's gonna that's gonna hurt your pocketbook. Well, so I I, I would point to two things. Um, uh, again, I, let me stick with the job search for a second, just because it's easy to, for people to understand, I think, um, and within a lot of folks' experience. Uh, two stages. One is um, almost certainly if you start on a job in a warehouse or in a retail establishment, um, the, there's an expectation that you have at least basic 
uh, skills working with a terminal and a keyboard. Right. Uh, and so you don't get that except through doing it. Right. There's there's no way to, to learn that except by having uh, access to the experience. But even before that. Um, many, many employers at this point ask you for a resume to be sent to them by email. Right. Again, blue-collar jobs. Right, right. right. This is a completely new thing. Ten, you know, 15 years ago, if you put in a job application at a plant, nobody asked you for a resume, right? This is whatever they wanted to know, they put in the application. It's all so there. That's right. It's an exercise, right? It, it reflects the fact that they're doing electronic sorting of applications, mm-hmm. right? So this is just a reflexive thing now. You know, send us your resume. Well, how do you write a resume? How do you write a resume in general, let alone how do you write a resume using Word, right? Right. Uh, let alone convert it to a PDF to send it, right? So these are all things that are basic. Yes, it's, it's literacy, but it's a very low level of literacy for using the technology. And yet, for many people, it's, it's uh, you know, five or six uh, – classes out there from the skill level that they're at. Mm. So, so this is just one area, but and there are a number of others. Education is an obvious one. Uh, people at the FCC and other places have taken to talking about the homework gap, which is a very real thing for, for inner-city students, uh, for low-income students of all kinds. Um, I, one other thing I would point to, though, because I think um, in this election season it, it may resonate with a number of folks, the reality is that most political communication now is happening online. Hmm. And the thing that really brought that home to me, uh, and I'm, I'm going to use this as an example, irrespective of people's you know, particular preferences in the presidential election, but if you were in Cleveland, Ohio, because of the timing of the election season, if you happen to be somebody who did not use the Internet, which is you know, 40% of households in this city, right? Yeah. And... Um, you would not have known that Bernie Sanders was running for president until three weeks before the Ohio primary. Yeah. Oh, and when the ads started hitting. Well, when when they started, when he actually started showing up on national news. Yeah, yeah. And um, and that happened to be a week after the registration deadline in Ohio. So, if you, for example, were somebody who would have voted for Sanders on the basis that. You know, he wanted to raise your pay to fifteen dollars. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, you would not have known that you had that opportunity, right? Interesting. And, th- and and that's because a vast amount of political communication, including virtually everything that isn't uh, you know paid ads, now happens on the internet. Mm. Uh, I got two paper postcards in the primary in Ohio. It was a contested primary. They were both from Sanders. They both arrived in the last three days before the election. Yeah. Right? You know, it, it was it, the whole non-Internet campaign has become almost an afterthought to what we do online. So you, you, one of the reasons I started thinking about this as a civil rights issue is we invest a lot of energy in the question of voter suppression and voter access. Uh, it, it's a very, very big deal. It's in, in many ways, uh, in, you know, Side by side with the Black Lives Matter issues, the issue of um, real or alleged attempts to kind of shut down minority community voting is a very big issue. This probably affects 10 times as many people as that could ever affect. Mm. 
Because uh, it's not it's not even just communication and participation. It's not just inner city, right? It's I mean, I mean, Detroit and Cleveland, both only only 40 percent of those uh, po- uh, population of those cities um, have access to inner. But this is also a rural America issue. This is even okay. seniors. This is this is this is a big issue. Well, so the the nature of the problem, which we used to call the digital divide and People now are more inclined to what they talk about as digital inclusion or digital exclusion. Um, is that there are certain demographic uh, cohorts that are just much less likely to be using the internet actively or to have the kind of digital literacy that comes with that active use. And the three big factors are household income, educational attainment, which is the census term for you know how far you got in school, right? mm-hmm. and and, and then age, right? Uh, older people, less likely. Um, so when you have you know, populations which are poorer, less ed- educated, and older are the ones where you have uh, you know, 50% of a uh, population, like low-income households in Cleveland, for example, um, who, who are, tend to be, many of whom are older, many of whom never finished high school or, or barely got a high school degree, and many of whom are poor, right? So right. you have that overlap, and it has that impact. Um, but yes, it's absolutely true that um, the percentage of uh, people who are, you know, over sixty-five, senior citizens, as we usually use the term, um, you know, something like forty percent of households uh, nationally still doesn't, you know, aren't aren't active internet users. That's you know changing very rapidly, uh, except to the extent we're talking about low-income folks. Um, but you know, it's still it's still a real issue, and, and they can't. Um, get, I mean, there's act there, there's Comcast. Their neighbors may be having Comcast, right? But some just can't. They just flat out can't afford it. Well, so then they might be having a provider. Those three categories have you know, a combination of not knowing how to do it, not having a social network that will help them do it, never having sort of gotten their head around you know what they could do with it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and also affordability. Right, those those things kind of kind of pile up on people. But then we have another issue, which is the issue of you know is this accessible at all where I live? Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to uh, bet that uh, in your listening area, there's probably a significant number of rural areas. Yeah, there are. Uh, or you may have, where where that may also be an issue, right? Um, and and that's the issue I think that people have recognized for longest. <laughs> at least in Ohio, it's true that state government has made an issue of access for rural areas a real political concern for 10 years, whereas uh, there's very little state government concern for uh, affordability. (laughs) Right, right. So so it's it's not a neglected issue, but nonetheless, it's one that's still out there. So so those four things. um, There's age, there's education, there's income and affordability as as an aspect of that. And then there's, you know, still a significant part of the country where there just isn't good access. Uh, and you put those things together and you end up with something like 15 percent of households in the country uh, are not Internet users. Uh, and um, they don't have home broadband, um, you know, sort of right. normal mainstream um, uh, definition of access. And, and but those 15 percent are, are increasingly concentrated in particular areas. And, and it's uh, and those and those are rural areas and they're areas where you have large 
groups of low-income, older, less educated people. Right. And, and, and again, really, we'll pay for it as a country. Um, we'll pay for it one way or another. We want equal opportunity, equal access. Let's take a break. We're going to come back more with Bill Callahan and uh, the group Connect Your Community, talking about internet access as as a right, as as an as not you know as as equal to education and uh, healthcare, as as important to as you know your other utilities of water and 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 clean um, you know clean services. So. We'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion. Interesting, folks. It's not just for entertainment anymore. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and uh, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Is it a right or is it, uh, you know, a privilege to have the Internet? You know, think about it. Think of everything you can do now. I mean, registering cars, even um, voting eventually, right? And so, or in some places, you probably can. So I I look at it and I think 40% of certain cities aren't even don't even have access to the internet and many i know are going to argue well hello they can go down to a library our guest today bill callahan uh he joins us he's the director of connect your community which is an organization aiming to develop sustainable strategies that empower tens of thousands of people in cleveland and detroit residents there to join the digital mainstream Um, but really his message i think is great for all uh communities Let's make sure that everyone is included in this uh, technological, uh, you know, reality and world that we live in. Bill Callahan, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. Great to have you again. Um, one thing you you made a really, I think, interesting point that when somebody says, "Oh, come on, Bill," not, they don't need to have the internet in their home. They can just go down to the library and hopefully access it there. You know, as they wait in line to get access to a free computer. What do you say about that? How is that not, you know, that's, they've, they've got their rights there. Go down and get it. Well, libraries in many communities, I'd say in most communities, uh, have over the last few years done an incredible job of backstopping uh, this, you know, rapidly developing uh, uh, need that people have uh, to deal with the Internet. Uh, in Cleveland, we have, uh, I think, 27 neighborhood branch libraries, which is a terrific layout for the city. And every one of them has 16 public access computers and, you know, some Wi-Fi for people who bring in a device. And so, yes, this is absolutely a resource, and people absolutely use it. Uh, when we have people come into a computer center for classes, the likelihood that they've been in the library and gotten an email account and had some experience is very high. So, uh, you know... I have nothing critical to say about the efforts libraries have made to deal with this. But that's like saying I have nothing critical to say about the role that, you know, segregated black schools did in serving uh, the folks they served in the South in the 1950s. Right. Uh, you know, they, they, the, the educators who ran those schools were heroes, but that didn't make the system an adequate system. Right, right. And, right. And so that's why I, 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 
uh, has said in a couple of places that I, you know, we're, this is kind of the separate but equal version uh, of of dealing with uh, digital exclusion. But I, let me just say, I, I, so I, I do think there's a civil rights uh, uh, aspect to this, uh, and um, this is something that increasingly I think people in our community of you know folks who work on these issues are beginning to, to say, but. In many ways, it, it makes more sense to talk about it as a utility issue. Because yeah. Th- this is this is not the, the point. Is not that being on the internet is you know ultimately the essence of being human. <laughs> uh, it's that you can't get to all those other social functions right. that are being you know rapidly turned you know to something that's exclusively online unless you have the internet. Uh, so. Well, um, how does a, that, I just that, think of a college student, an inner city. It's, it's just excludes from a lot of things that we can't get to. Oh, yeah. Okay. An, inner city, an inner city college student uh, and, and their mother trying to fill out, um, you know, financial aid forms, but doing it at a library um, on, you know, and, and putting out all their financial data and trying to do it in a fast enough way with, you know, people standing in line behind them wanting to get on. Uh, it, it there there just needs to be it is it is a utility and issue. Librarians will be the librarians will be the first people to tell you that. Yeah, you know the, the, this is it, again. I started to say you know we have this great uh, you know real effort uh, in our Cleveland libraries and in libraries in many other cities uh, to deal with this, uh, but that doesn't mean that people you know adults aren't being you know limited to half hour forty five minutes you know on a library computer to do what they have, what they need to do during mm-hmm. the day. And all the issues you're talking about, issues of privacy, issues of, you know, having access to stuff that you only have at home, right? This is, you know, and people, when people are trying to do really vital tasks, that's a real limitation. You, because, um, yeah, I think that's it, too, is when, when a lot of us think of the Internet, we think of, well, sure, that's accessing the Cavalin, or the Cavaliers-Warriors game, um, which, good job, by the way. But um, in, in the end, I look at it, though, you, you, you bring up great points that nowadays this is this is people finishing their GED and, and now everything's so technologically driven that um, people can go online and get a GED, but they, they still need to take tests. That, and the tests might not be online, but a lot of the literacy is online. Plus, you've got to take training videos for your for jobs and for job advancements, for applications. I mean, it really then starts to impact the financial bottom line of people's ability to earn, right? So this this is important. Let me mention three other areas, I think. Uh, One of them is GED, and thank you for bringing that up. Uh, About two years ago, the entire general education uh, uh, diploma equivalent system, which is not a government system. It's actually run, used to be run by a big nonprofit. It's now private. that system was switched over to one from one in which you could take the test with a pen on paper to one in which you can only take the test in a computerized testing center. So if you don't have computer skills, you cannot get your GED. Now, hmm. Many people will, may say, hey, you know, of course you can't. You couldn't get you know, a high school diploma if you couldn't use a computer. And that's true, but it's also true that that convergence of low income and low education is precisely the population that needs to get their GEDs. And so while we change the system so that now you can't get through that door unless you can know how to use a computer, we haven't changed any, we haven't added any resources uh, to enable people to learn that skill. Right. So 
So that's one very important issue. Two others I want to mention really quickly. One of them is there are many. There are now, there's now real pressure uh, on banks to start reducing branches in inner cities simply because they have nobody coming in the door because 70% of their customers are now online. But the people who aren't online oh, are going to lose that branch access, and banks know it. And there's beginning to be real motion, I think, with the banks to realize that they have a real business stake yeah. in dealing with this issue. Mm. And the other and the other industry that has that stake is the healthcare industry. The healthcare industry has converted virtually its entire system of research and, and clinical practice to one which relies on electronic medical records, which also includes getting low-income patients to use their record interfaces, right? They're, yeah. they're what's, what are called patient health record systems or patient portals. And in a city like Cleveland, 60% of the relevant patients can't. <laughs> it's oh. that simple. Yeah. So um, uh, hospitals also really, you know, hospitals and community clinics really need this to be dealt with. So it isn't, it, 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 obviously this is an issue for the patients and the customers, but it's also an issue for the businesses and institutions that need to be able to deal with them and who are trying to move on from legacy systems while many, many of their constituents simply can't move on to the next system. So, Bill, what happens? What do we do? What's, what, what's the solution? Okay. So, for the most part, this is being dealt with at the community level. There, there are no real national or even statewide initiatives in most places to deal with it. That makes sense because it's very focused in, in specific communities. But as you probably know, uh, communities have diminishing resources. Right. Um, so the big issue has been for years simply that it's very hard to find the resources to support what we know works, which is simply, you know, high-touch community programs that help people to learn, right? It's, it's every, uh, every computer training program for people who don't have skills ends up using exactly the same tools. It's human teachers. It's human outreach at the community level by trusted organizations. It's helping people to get cheap equipment and looking for ways to get relatively affordable service. And, you know, that that's universal. It's what yeah. libraries do. It's what community groups do. And it's, you know, it costs money because it's people doing things, right? Right. Um, so um, there was one brief period between 2010 and 2012 when the in the part of the, as part of the federal stimulus program, there was a significant investment in uh, what's called a broadband adoption program <clears throat> across the country, about $250 million, and there was an explosion of activity. Uh, that program ended, the resources ended, and now everybody's back scuttling around in their communities looking for some resources to support this work. Fundamentally, the problem is not that we don't know what to do or that we don't know the scope of the problem. This is not that complicated. This is about whether you, you can manage to support a large number of initiatives which reach out to people and help them to learn. Yeah. And um, so um, that's what we're engaged in is looking, you know, trying to organize those resources. We have a national uh, network now called the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, which is about a year old, includes about 200 organizations in 32 states, uh, includes a lot of libraries as well as community-based organizations and cities and so on. And um, we're, you know, tr- we're working that problem Yeah. Um, and, and hoping that by calling attention to that problem, um, we'll get some attention also on the part of people who are in a better position to move resources, such as, let's say, 
presidential candidate. Yeah, presidential um, candidates, Google, uh, some of these bigger, bigger dogs. Bill, we're going to we're going to have to take a break. Um, but really, we appreciate your insight on this. We, we recommend everybody go look up uh, connectyourcommunity.org. That is if you happen to have the Internet. But this is a problem that's not going away, folks. And uh, we've got great people like Bill Callahan who are chasing it down, trying to find a way to um, to extend the opportunity that technology brings to everybody. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up this first hour of the show. Stick with us, folks. Helping you lead healthier lives And give back if you can. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, now that school's out, summer's here, you might be wondering what to do with your very limited vacation days Whether you plan on basking in the Bahamas or packing the family into an RV and hitting the road, our producer Leanna Tan has some of her very own tips to make uh, this summer's vacation trips uh, one to remember. Now that it's warming up, all your dreams of long walks on the beach can actually become a reality. Summer is the time for relaxing, vacationing, and my favorite, road trips. Matt showed me this article on the Harvard Business Review, Five Rules for Vacation That's Truly Worth It. But I don't necessarily agree with it, and here's why. Number one says that we should all use our holidays to move and exercise, especially those of us in jobs that keep us at meeting tables or desks all day. Okay, I'm all for racing around theme parks and going adventuring, but let's be real. You've got to catch those Zs. Allow yourself to sleep in for once. My advice? Make sure you're traveling with three or more people so once your lids get heavy, someone else can take your shift of entertaining the driver. Number two, find peaceful, beautiful surroundings. Nature not only helps you listen to your inner voices, it can also inspire new purpose and passions. I'd like to propose finding a different kind of inner voice. There's nothing to keep your driver awake and alert than purposefully... Singing off key. Oh, now you going through St. Louis, time and Missouri, and Oklahoma City looks mighty pretty. You'll see Amarillo. This is one of my most favorite road trip activities. You'd think it'd be easy to sing off key, but quite the contrary. After a lifetime of learning how to hit the notes, you'd be amazed how difficult it is to try to stay off tune. Not to brag, but I've been practicing a lot, and I'd like to think that despite several years of glee club practicing... I've mastered the art. <laughs> okay, this is a perfect road trip song to ruin. Sweet home Alabama. Lord, I'm coming home to you. That's pretty bad. Oh, I'm so glad these doors are soundproof. People are walking by. Okay, I'm going to stop. Number three, plan properly. Never leave your holidays to chance. The preparation itself can be fun. <laughs> what? Since when has spending hours looking through online hotel catalogs been fun? No! Always leave your holidays to chance. Bask in the spontaneity. Some of my most memorable vacations were leaving to Wendover on a whim after Thanksgiving dinner with nothing but the clothes on my back, and packing up and flying to Malaysia with no real plans except to get there. It relieves the stress of planning every minute and lessens expectations to see everything on your agenda. Plus, it makes room for fate and random adventures to come across your path. 
The only thing you really need to plan in advance is how long you can last without washing your hair. <laughs> Number four, meet different interesting people. Ooh, I definitely agree with this one. I've met some of the most interesting people standing in line for a roller coaster or hiking the red rocks of Sedona, like a band of hippies that taught me how to drum and let me dance with them in their full moon circle. So next time you're at a national park or in a massive line for the next roller coaster, just think. You could be creating a lifelong friendship based on the bond of mutual heat exhaustion and regurgitated funnel cakes. <laughs> Number five, be willing to invest. Well, this automatically goes against my entire vacation motto: to be as cheap as possible, even if that means boiling spaghetti in the microwave with a side of canned Vienna sausages on your trip to Disneyland. Oh, gross! What? If I tell myself I have to eat carrot sticks every day at my work desk, I think I deserve to treat myself to a possibly radioactive dinner on my weekend out. Yeesh. But I guess I do have to partly agree with this. It says many of us are biased toward tangible luxuries. We spend more on houses, cars, clothes, and other things, which very soon lose their initial attraction and generate all sorts of worries and maintenance needs than we do on experiences, which, according to research, offer more long-term satisfaction, providing not only pleasure but also a chance to learn and grow. Quality vacations are one of the highest-term investments you can make. It's true. Time is money. Like my dad once said, you can always earn back money, but you can't earn back memories. So. Before you head out on your adventures this summer, grab a window seat so you don't do that awkward, sleepy head bob jerk thing or fall asleep with your mouth gaping open. Also, remember, don't warm up that vocalizer before hitting the radio. Load up on canned goods, and if you really want to treat yourself, throw in a bag of trail mix—the ones with the little chocolate bits. And if you plan on anything, just plan on packing your deodorant first. Trust me, it'll make the trip a lot more enjoyable for everyone. Well. Enjoy your summer vacations. I'm Liana Tan, and that's my little tangent. We'll get your cakes on Route 66. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at one eight five five Chat BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hour number two of the great lift, we call it. We got a lift. We're lifting the world, folks. I'm not sure we should do that. If you have a lever long enough, you can lift the world. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Terry, get me a lever. I'll make a call to my guy. (laughs) I got this lever guy. (laughs) He's fantastic. Hey, uh, this is the show where we try to give you the information, the tools you need to live a happier, healthier life. Today, we will be talking about optimism. Ah, jeez. I hate that topic. Optimism, folks, it it's it is a great tool to help you find a new job. Optimists, they're more likely to be able to um, to get a job, which is weird. Terry yeah. is a pessimist. I am. And he's still locked into a job. I kind of fell into it, so it kind of—I yeah. don't know. I call it more luck. I still miss those. I mean, nights. I was in your interview. It was pretty lucky. You liked it. <laughs> it was good. You were energetic. You yeah. were like, ooh, 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 someone with ideas. By the way, it was really cool. And the first—I thought when you did the dramatization, ooh, yeah, of the signing of the Declaration mm-hmm. of Independence, mm-hmm. super powerful. 
Never knew I'd have just a powdered wig in my pocket. <laughs> Who Bam. pulls out a powdered wig powdered at wig. a job interview? You he be was pretty prepared. <laughs> it was amazing. But it, you know what? One little thing, if you're ever going to do that again, oh, yeah, yeah. don't overpowder it. Yeah, that because was, do you remember there was just there was like was, powder in the air for yeah. about five minutes. I was nervous. I was nervous. It's like LeBron James when he talks up. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, hey, uh, give me a second. <laughs> you pull the wig out. Dust everywhere. Hey, it's uh, flip-flop day. Uh, I want to play a really quick game. Uh, it's a game I made up last night or okay. yesterday. Mm-hmm. Ben and I made it up. See, after the show, Ben and I sit in a sit in my office and we we think of funny things mm. that seem really funny at the time. Yeah, yeah. So we wanted to play a game, <laughs> and it's it's just a, it's not it's a quick game because it's it's a hard game to play. But mm. it's called um, flip-flop or clippity-clop. Mm. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to play a sound, yeah. and you have to determine hmm. if this is a flip flop, meaning a sandal that's flapping against somebody's you know fatty part of their foot. Okay. Or is it a clippity clop? Is it like a horse hoof? Okay. okay. Or in Monty Python, the coconuts. Or the coconut guy. Okay, Ben. Horse. Now hold on. Oh. oh, is that is that a horse? Or is that someone wearing flip-flops walking through a petting zoo? Yeah. I'd go horse. So you'd go clippity-clop? Yes. Let's hear you say that. Clippity-clop? What do you want? Good and job. Was that a right answer? Yep. God, I couldn't tell <laughs> the, with the farm sound. The uh, okay, here comes another one. Is this a flip-flop uh-huh. or a clippity-clop? Okay. Be a flippity-flop. That is a flippity-flop. Well done. Well done. Uh, that is a flippity flop. And by the way, it's a flippity flop. It sounds like with somebody with like a hip injury. Or sticky feet. Yeah. Something's yeah, like. Yeah. I, I looked up sound uh-huh. of a flippity flop with injury. With hip so, injury. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Sounds like it's a left hip if I know my hips right. <laughs> a little which, uneven on which the flippity flop. Which I do. Which I do. Um, okay. And last and certainly not least, uh, is, is this a clip clop? Hmm. No. Clippity clop or a flip flop? No, that could be somebody could be. wearing maybe a harder flip-flop. It could be. And kind of skipping. Wouldn't a harder flip-flop be a clog? Yeah, but that's a different game. That would be a cloggity-clog. Cloggity-clog, flip-flop, or clippity-clop. Hmm. I'd have to go clippity-clop. Partially correct. Partially? That was Monty Python. That was the coconut man. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> you can't tell the difference between a coconut well, flop full, and a flippity flop. Fully sound is supposed to, you know, yeah. you take other items, make them sound like other things. Mm-hmm. So that was an effective sound effect. Good job. Good job, everybody. That is our tribute to Flip Flop Day and Clippity Clop Day and Coconut Running Behind a Guy Day. One might call it Slipper Day. Yeah, and we don't know who that one is. Anyway, it's also Apple Strudel Day. Mm. And plus, today we're not just going to talk sandals and flip flops. We're also talking about optimism. We'll be getting to that in a few minutes. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Thanks, Matt. Hun- hundreds of firefighters are scrambling to contain several wildfires that are broken out across three southwestern states caused by hot air and dry weather. Blazes in California, Arizona, and New Mexico threaten communities 
with thousands of residents where so far hundreds of homes have been evacuated. Santa Barbara County, California, 1,400-acre uh, fire there, threatening structures and they're evacuating neighborhoods. Central New Mexico, 25 square miles burning 16,000 acres, forcing residents of several small communities to flee. Wow. More than 5,500 acres burning in east-central Arizona small community in Cedar Creek area was evacuated. Thousands were told to prepare to leave as the wildfires raged to more than 12 square miles. So wow. Hot temperatures over the next we week go. they're going to climb into the 120s yeah. down towards the border. So. Speaking of hot air, that 120 degrees in like Phoenix and yeah. Holy cow. That's crazy. A new group of sponsors that were set to be involved with the next month's uh, Republican convention in Cleveland are choosing to opt out. Wells Fargo, UPS, Motorola, J.P. Morgan, and Ford are among the group that backed out in recent days. All of those companies sponsored the previous convention in 2012. None of them publicly said that they uh, backed out because of Donald Trump. None of them publicly said that. But privately, they can't get away fast enough. And it came last week when... A lot uh-huh. of different controversial comments were made. Yeah, they don't want to be a part of it. Plus, he's his his you know money raising is is slowing down too. Some of the sponsors are backing out of both conventions. Yeah, you ha- you have to almost right. Yeah. You can't just you can't do one. Yeah, you don't want to be. The idea of being there is you're in both, mm-hmm. and as you back out of one, you show you know, they don't want to show bias, so they may back out of both. Man. Senator John McCain, who faces a tough primary fight in Arizona this year, told reporters Thursday that President Obama was directly responsible for the horrific shooting in Orlando because of his alleged inability to defeat the Islamic State terror group and withdraw U.S. and when he withdrawed U.S. forces from Iraq. Omar Mateen reportedly pledged allegiance to ISIS during his shooting in uh, the Orlando nightclub. The senator later added in a statement, I misspoke. I did not mean to imply that the president was personally responsible. I was referring to President Obama's national security decisions, not yeah. the president himself. It, it wasn't – Barack did not go down and cause it, but his decisions and his – yeah. That caused a little bit of a an uproar as people were trying to clarify, like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> Hold on. Are you serious? Yeah. In the face of large-scale opposition from the beverage industry, Philadelphia's city council on Thursday passed a tax on sugary drinks dubbed the soda tax. The legislation will levy a 1.5-cent per ounce tax on sugary drinks and diet beverages. Opponents had warned that the tax would create a black market for such products. Hey, you want some (laughs) Coca-Cola? Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kinney was able to sell the council on the proposal by pledging to use the extra funds for pre-kindergarten programs and recreation centers both great causes totally i mean this is we talked about it on the show you got to do it we're, we're sugaring up people to death but does the city need to be your parent and tell you what you can and can't drink of course they do philadelphia becomes the first major city in the u.s to approve such attacks berkeley california instituted a similar measure in 2014 berkeley berkeley why berkeley I don't know. <laughs> just says Berkeley. The bastion of liberal progressive movement. Berkeley. Uh, and this one's just for you. Your, yes. your previous um, experience as an emergency medical yes. technician. What do you need? Two, MT, two emergency medical technicians caught live streaming themselves as they ignored a call for help on the drive-through line of a New Jersey uh, White Castle 
Oh, fast no, food yeah, place. Fast food they, uh, they, and then the video they're using Periscope, which is uh, aligned with Twitter. Uh-huh. So they're using that on their phone as the call comes and in. They're and they're live streaming in their truck. In their truck. And they went, nah, we're not going to take that. We want to get our food. They were like the next in line or Hold something. Hold on, our nuggets are right here. We got to get our nuggets. <laughs> and, but someone was screaming help or it was on the call? It was the call. Radio so call. a radio call. Yeah, you can't do that. And they just kind of blew off the call to get their fast food. They were later they resigned and were fired. Well, but the, well, the it, yeah, so the, that probably happens all the time. But you're just not live, live streaming, streaming it. it. That's really the thing. Yeah. So a viewer on the app inquired about the delay prompting the EMT to say he wasn't about to leave his dinner while while uh, they responded to the call that was likely a taxi ride, referring to people who fake emergencies yeah. to get free rides to the hospital. Yeah, we do that. I used to do that all the time. Not yeah. fake it. I we pick up so, people that needed to get. So to he's the live streaming it. Somebody on the stream commented to him, "Aren't you going to take that call?" And he texted. He basically typed into the live stream back. Yeah. We're not going to do this for a taxi ride. I'm going to get my food. Yeah. So even then, he uh, doubled down. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know what? That's kind of you know. Let's just teach the lesson. Hey, folks, if you're going to live stream, don't you can't be an EMS person and live stream. You just can't. You can't do it that way. It doesn't work that way. Anyway, uh, we got a great uh, story. I got to tell you, this is an important story coming up. Um, how, how many Terry cats did you have at your wedding? Zero. Oh, so you hate cats? You're a cat hater. Okay, I'll go on record with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had twelve. Twelve cats at my wedding. Uh, that's great. a good round number. Yeah. Uh, actually, I don't like cats. I'm allergic to cats. I had no cats at my wedding. This couple had on their wedding guest list 1,100 cats. Meow. Mm. 1,100 cats. Okay, now listen to the story. At most weddings, it would probably be considered impolite or at the very least unusual if the majority of guests began to lick themselves. Right, right. Totally true. I mean, nothing freaks you out more than like you're having, I don't know, a little <laughs> fruit cup, a little... <laughs> A little cake, and then the guy next to you just starts licking his arm. That's yeah, weird. Yeah. But at this wedding, it was not impolite or unusual because 1,100 cats showed up. So mm. this couple, Dominic Husson and uh, Louise Verano from Montreal, exchanged their vows. We have video. It's the most beautiful wedding you've ever seen. And um, as you know, we like to play video on the show. So we're going to roll the video. And the video mm. is uh, the cats, as you watch them, they're, they're lining up. They had all the cats come down the aisle. Okay. Before the bride and the groom did. Mm-hmm. And then they lined up. And this is the weirdest thing. The cats then performed the music for the bride and the groom. So we'll play the video. They've, they've got little bow ties on. Are they auto-tuned? No. They're they, a little auto-tuned. No, 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 no. They practiced. This is all practiced. And then... You can't see it because you're not watching the video, but I'll explain right. it. Here comes the bride being walked by an, a dog. Uh, there's a dog now. A dog. At the, a dog. Wow. Cut it. Cut it. Get wow. it. Wow. That went, that went bad really fast there. One dog. How did a dog get in? I have no idea. Was he invited? Who invited the dog? Was he with the groom? He's obviously with the groom's family. Wow. Did you see the fat little tomcat walking the bride down? The alpha cat? Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I couldn't believe how just be, that was canon in D. That was great. By cats. It sounded auto-tuned, but yeah, great. 
It wasn't auto-tune. It sounded that way. Well, I was waiting for Kanye West to pop up or something. You know what, though? There, if um, We probably ought to – after they got the dog out of there, mm-hmm. the, the, they picked up again. <laughs> and you got to hear the drop. There's a really cool drop in the music. Ah, we don't have time to do it because we got to go to break. But oh. they, they actually just drop into an incredible – what would you call it, Ben? Like a – A dubstep. Like a dubstep. Mm. And then the neatest thing, you know how they play these fun games where you, they all start dancing mm-hmm. at the wedding? Sure, yeah. So the cats just all, all started doing a little dubstep dance. Okay. Well, laser pointers beautiful. coming down from the Holy the cow. I've never seen a laser pointer used more than at that wedding. Mm. And a little fluffy ball on a stick. So, so except, Cats were jumping. Except for the incident with the dog. The dog. It seemed like everything yeah. went off kind of as and I, planned. I'm sad we had to stop the video because the dog did ruin it. But there, it got pretty ugly. <laughs> I think two cats went down. Well, needed yeah. to be put down after. But, you know, out of 1,100, that's not bad. Unless, of course, you're a cat lover. Oh, isn't love great? Why wouldn't you want to share the most important day of your life when you make a covenant or a commitment to each other? Why wouldn't you want to share it with 1,100 felines? I could think of 1,100 reasons. You seem to hate cats too. I'm not a big fan. Mm. Well, I love cats except for the ones that make me sneeze and sick. Hmm. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, optimists. Are you an optimist? Guess what? Apparently, it's better for you in finding a job, according to an article out of Harvard Business Review. Stick with us. Interesting insight, helping you uh, lead healthier, happier lives. Today, we'll be talking about more optimistic lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when job hunting, uh, you know, we've got a lot of stuff you got to make sure happens. Got to do a lot of preparation. You have to update your resume, contact your references, maybe even make a sweep of your social media profiles. But is the most important thing that you actually could bring to the job search, maybe it's just your optimism, your smile, perhaps. Michelle Geelan uh, joins us now. She uh, wrote a wonderful article in the Harvard Business Review titled Optimists Are Better at Finding New Jobs, based on some research she's been doing. And uh, Michelle, we appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you have a a new book out, too, called Broadcasting Happiness. Is that where a lot of this research came from? Yes. uh, The book is revolved around this idea that there are our mindset uh, that fuels success, fuels long-term levels of success. And my research colleagues and I have done uh, extensive research at uh, many large organizations looking at how those play out and how to accurately test for them. And the main and biggest one we found is work optimism. Hmm. Now, because this is huge, and I've heard so much lately about uh, kind of the lack of engagement at work and so it seems like if you, I think there was a study out uh, by was it Pew um, about seventy percent of people at work are disengaged or, or not engaged, which would tell us that if you're an optimist, you're either probably going to go find a new job, I guess, or you're going to be the one that's engaged. Yes, absolutely. It it very much goes hand in hand. Um, what we find is that uh, the organization. 
able to either find people who are naturally more optimistic or and or foster a greater sense of optimism while they're at work, uh, they actually um, find that engagement scores are higher as well. Um, optimism, the definition is very interesting. I didn't entirely understand it until I got into this research yeah. because a lot of people miss misthink optimism. They go, it, it's about putting on rose-colored glasses and thinking everything's going to be okay. And actually, when we look at the research, study it, it's the belief that good things will happen. And in the face of challenge, it's the belief that our behavior matters to make those good things happen. So it's a very empowered mindset. Huh. It's the belief that good things will happen and the belief that uh, we can we can influence them? That's correct. That our behavior matters so we have we have agency. We have a sense of empowerment. We can take action steps. So you, know, you mentioned um, earlier about optimism playing a big role in finding a new job. When I lose my job and I'm looking for a new one, if I maintain a belief that I can affect the situation in a positive way, I'm going to update my resume, jump on LinkedIn, and do all these other positive activities. The pessimist might get around to eventually doing those activities. But it just takes them because they believe ultimately that negative events are permanent and pervasive. Mm. So I lost my job. I might not be unemployed forever. You know, it's not permanent forever, but it's going to be a long time before I find one. And this is affecting a lot of domains of my life. So no wonder my marriage is going to be suffering right now. Absolutely. And uh, just that very belief that good things can happen, like like you say, it's not only going to impact – if you go look for another job, I mean, you can see a pessimist that has maybe only got five more years to retirement might and and has been at the job 20 years. They might be thinking, well, I don't want to do it. I don't want to rock the boat now. I'm just going to ride this out and and maybe wouldn't go ahead and and risk either making their life better at work or wouldn't risk necessarily going to look for something different because they don't think it's possible. Yeah, absolutely. How lonely. I mean, it's life is hard, isn't it? Is is are you born an optimist? Do you learn optimism? Uh, well, the exciting thing about the research is that actually optimism, as well as those two other predictors of success, are entirely malleable. Yes, you are born at a certain level with all of these things. And so genes definitely play a role. Environment plays a role. Um, happiness researchers, positive psychology researchers, look at this idea of a genetic set point when it comes to your happiness. But they quickly tell you, hey, it is malleable. You just got to train your brain to look at life differently. You want to see, you know, for lack of sometimes better ways of explaining it, you want to try to train your brain to see the glass half full, all the things that are working and going well, the people that are invested in you, the meaning embedded in the work that you're doing, the things you're grateful for. If you can train your brain to first see those things, you're actually fueling not only your current levels of optimism, but your long-term levels of success as well. Huh. Do you, um, I guess, I guess that's, that's so hopeful, right? Because now all of a sudden it's not, yeah, we're just a happy, optimistic family. And like you were saying earlier, it's not just burying your head in the sand and, you know, making everything seem rosy either. Right. So, um, in my book, I told this story, and it was it was so funny as it all went down. My six year old niece, um, she's a doll. She came up to me one day. I came over to her house, and she said, "I've been ostrich sized to my room all day." <laughs> and I said, <laughs> "So my husband, who went to Harvard, uh, and her parents went to Harvard, 
he loves to make a joke that, oh, she's using big words because her parents went to Harvard. She's now misusing them because they later went on to Yale. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> That's, That's it. Ruining the children. A step down going to Yale. Um, how, so how, what I, I loved about, about that word was that's so relevant to how the approach that so many of us can sometimes take when we want to maintain a modicum of happiness, right? We want to stick our heads in the sand and not be aware of the problems that our organizations or things going on in the world. What we're finding now, though, from all the research we're doing is that there's so much more productive path, whether you're losing your job, whether, you know, I mean, really any challenge. It's to celebrate successes, both in good times and bad, get your brain focused on all of those good things. And then in the midst of challenges, to focus on solutions. Let's talk about what's to come. Let's talk about the way that we can make a difference in this situation. Anything else, the complaining, the yada, yada, that, that doesn't fuel long-term success. And so the, the less amount of time we can stay in those zones, the better off we are. Yeah, because yeah, I guess having a belief that your behavior will change things, that like that agency you're talking about, that empowerment, it does kind of, it forces you to not whine anymore and instead get solution-oriented, get start doing something, whatever you can do. Uh, yeah, in a study that we just completed, I did this with um, my research partner, Sean Acor and Ariana Huffington, we looked at the difference between just merely talking about a problem or pairing the discussion of the problem with a discussion of solutions and how that relates to future problem solving and mood. And what we found is, and, and by the way, the way we did this was um, we tested people's mood and, uh, and creative problem solving abilities, exposed them either to an article just about a problem, so hunger in America, right? right. Or we exposed them to a, uh, an article about that same problem article, but then it went on to discuss things that you could actually do in your, your neighborhood right now to help alleviate hunger, like fundraising or, or donating to a food bank. And then we tested their problem solving and mood again. And what we found is that when you start talking about solutions that people can take right now on subsequent unrelated tasks, these are unrelated things to what you were just talking about, creative problem solving increases by 20%. Mm. Not to mention the mood improves as well. So what that means is, for, for instance, for managers who are leading their teams through tough times, you actually can talk about the negative but do so in a way that maintains engagement, creative problem-solving abilities, and general better mood among your employees. It's so true. So, I mean, this is there, there's an entire movement in positive psychology about this, uh, and and even in organizational behavior about appreciative inquiry. It's the very questions you're asking, right? So, if you're only asking like so, and talking about the problems. And if you do it too long without getting into some kind of problem-solving mentality or, or solution generation uh, orientation, you're going to decrease your effectiveness. Yeah, you may even burn your people out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the, I think the biggest job of the manager is reorienting the team's attention to the parts of their reality that are going to be fueling to them. Mm. Yeah, and, and keeping – Keeping the upside up, I mean, it doesn't mean there's not going to be negatives, but you don't the, – the longer you stay in the negative without moving to the, you know, the, the, the opportunity side, um, right. you're going to drown them. Uh, let's take a break. We're, we're speaking again with, uh, with Michelle Geelan, and she's a um, – she is an author. 
and a writer. She's she's done extensive research as well. She has a wonderful website. If you go to michellegeelan.com, you can you can find out more about that and her book, Broadcasting Happiness, which are tools, folks, to uh, to understand what's going on. And it's hard. The minute we say optimism, you can almost tell people like, oh, geez, here we go. Just blowing smoke. <laughs> more with Michelle Geelan when we come back, folks. We're going to continue to uncover this, give you some more solutions for how you can up the optimism in your life. Stick with us. We'll be right back. back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, helping you live longer and lead healthier, happier lives, and if we can, improve relationships along the way. And would you believe it, uh, one way to um, feel better about life, to, to get better jobs, to, to, to make it work for you, because life's not easy, is optimism. And not just, you know, the squishy, soft kind of optimism, but uh, according to our our guest, uh, Michelle Geelan, this is optimism that gets some serious results. Michelle's the author of the book Broadcasting Happiness and is the founder of the Institute for Applied Positive Research. She's an executive producer of The Happiness Advantage, uh, which was a special on PBS and featured professor in and a featured professor in Oprah's Happiness Course. Michelle, we appreciate you and welcome you back. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Talk about. Um, I mean, when you think of optimism, there's there's got to be some some ways, some solutions, and tools that we can use to get it to be more a part of our life if it doesn't just come natural to us. Absolutely. And um, so you mentioned Oprah's happiness courses are some of the same habits that I shared during the course. Um, what the main thing is to do is to remind ourselves that our brain, while it, our brains are amazing, we do have limited resources with which to experience the world. You can't see everything happening all at once, right? Right. Um, as a matter of fact, researchers have found that in, in any given second, our brain can process 40 to 50 bits of information, but our brain's bombarded by more than 11 million bits of information per second. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's incredible what we're able to do, but also just the sheer magnitude of the information that flows at us from all of our nerve endings. So what that means is inherently there are choices to be made on how we devote our attention. If we are walking into a room, walking into our company, coming home after a long, busy day and seeing our family, and we're first focusing on all the hassles, complaints, problems, stresses, and challenges, we literally do not leave our brain resources left over to experience the meaning embedded in the work that we're doing or the time we're spending with our family or the great thing that our two-year-old made in the art class for us and we're getting to see it. I mean, we don't have the brain resources to, to see all of that stuff. And that is the fuel for optimism and the fuel for a happy brain long term. Um, so as we you know, talked about earlier, optimism is a belief that our behavior matters. It's the expectation of good things to happen. So the more times we can account, hey, this this turned out well, or this is going to be well because of X, Y, and Z, I mean, legitimate factual reasons, the more we build a higher sense of optimism long term. There was a study that worked with 80-year-old grumpy pessimists. <laughs> <laughs> I think I work with some of them. 
I don't know if they were in the study or not. <laughs> and they, uh, they tried to get them to basically be more optimistic. The habit was exceptionally simple, and it's something that anyone listening could adopt today. Um, they had them write down three new and unique things that they were grateful for each day and for a period of time. So the gentlemen that were able to keep this habit up, new and different each day, uh, for a period of six months, Researchers found that they went from testing as low to moderate level pessimists. They then started testing as moderate level optimists after the practice the other way. Yeah. By just looking for things you're grateful for. Unique. Yes. Oh, wow. New and unique each day. And the key is here is what we're showing our brain repeatedly is the meaning, the gratitude, the, the things that are, are provide a hopeful picture for us, right? Hey, I'm loved. I have these family members who care about me, or my job's actually working well because of this. And all of a sudden, your brain starts to connect the dots, and then it, it falls more easily into this default optimistic state. Wow. No, I mean, we've heard about that, right? You know, be grateful. <laughs> think happy yeah. things but the reality is is if you can turn a bunch of curmudgeons from a from a low to moderate pessimist into just a moderate optimist by something how, how long did the did the study go was it a month um, they they've kept it up for six months um but they actually started to see changes in as few as 14 days wow because you're looking um, so for yeah. it right yeah you're just spending your mind your mind at focus your energy is being focused on something that's additive that's that's appreciative yeah and and these small habits make a huge difference i mean in our work so i i speak at companies across the the united states but i also go overseas although i have a two-year-old now so i mostly stay stateside yeah um but uh we you know i share the the other some of the other habits um this concept of the power lead what are what's your broadcast what are you leading with when you talk to people and can you switch that up instead of saying Oh, how are you? Oh, I'm stressed. Oh, I'm tired. Instead, start with something positive, a power lead. So by saying something simple and positive and meaningful, oh, I'm doing great. I had breakfast with my son this morning. He's being so cute. But what we see is that as a researcher, if I know the first few words of a conversation, I have a high degree of likelihood of predicting the outcome of that conversation. Interesting. You just have to own the beginning. You own the intro. Yes. Yes. And you have the power then to set the stage for how other people respond to you because they're not going to come at you then probably with something negative if they see you're starting in a positive state. Again, this is not about ignoring the negative. If something's going on, we talk about it and take a realistic assessment in the present moment. But in the meantime, we celebrate the good and maintain a belief that our behavior matters when challenges strike. Wow. Is it um, – and again, as you say, we don't – it's not like we don't address that there's issues going on, but you, you could eventually – turn that conversation to the more difficult issue, but you want to build up, I guess, the reservoir of optimism first. Absolutely. So we worked with a gentleman out in California at a tech company. He was a manager. He would get a report of all the bugs issued overnight on their computer system and then come to his team and talk to them about all the fires they needed to put out. He was stressing them out. They were all leaving the meeting, the morning meeting, completely stressed. And what he decided to do was just do a quick switch up of the power, the lead of the meeting. One thing he was grateful for about life in general, one about the team in general, and one about someone specific on the team. And he said that 45-second intervention transformed the tone of the meeting, increased within a three- or four-week period. He could see an increase in productivity, social cohesion of the team, and 
and ultimately the quality of their work because people were so much more deeply connected. They felt appreciated and everything changed. Wow. Again, basic. Yeah. But profound, huh? And again, a team now, that's probably a manager now that people want to work with that's not right. sucking I mean, the life out of them. If we, if we can start focusing on all that's working right, as one study found, you can increase their, the entire team's productivity on average by 31%. I mean, just getting the getting people to focus on the things that are working and they're doing well, that's rational optimism. That's that's a, the best devotion of one's resources. Rational optimism versus irrational. And that, I think that's what it is. People look at it like you can't, it's, you can't be optimistic. It's cancer. But yeah. you're still fighting yeah. cancer, right? So if you still have to fight it and you're going to fight it, you may as well send as much energy to what else you love in the world also, you you can do both. Yeah, and across the board, when you look at optimism in relation to medical outcomes, personal health outcomes, uh, you know, as we've been talking about the work outcomes, family relationship, it is is incredible fuel. You have a cancer patient who's more optimistic. Well, guess what? They're going to show up at their doctor's appointments. They're more likely to follow doctor's orders, take the medicine that they need and complete treatment because they believe that their behavior matters. And so ultimately they have higher success rates in the face of cancer, in the face of anything that they're facing. Um, so optimism is, is the grease that you need in your car. It's, it's, the best. Um, but, you know, we talked about rational versus irrational. My husband, who's also in this uh, same line of work, he went to give a talk to a company and the CEO totally was into the information and wanted to, you know, ripple it out to his company. So he offered my husband a ride to the airport. They get in the car. The guy does not put on his seatbelt. Sean, of course, clicks on the seatbelt because he's, you know, he's yeah. doing what he's supposed to do. He's got to come home to you guys. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, so Sean turns to the guy after a while, the lights ding, 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 the bell, and it's going off. And he said, oh, you don't wear seatbelts? He said, no, man, I heard your talk. I'm an optimist. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, dude, you're an idiot. I'm yeah. sorry. Because like, optimism yeah. won't stop cars from hitting us. We're striving for rational optimism in the, you know, in the face of challenge. <laughs> That's such a great analogy. It's not an airbag, for heaven's sakes. It's just optimism. But it will make you feel better when you're recovering in the hospital. Right. It'll it'll really lift your life. Um, Michelle, it's I, I love that it's uh, so science backed and based this this movement to positive psychology. I mean, I know you spend a lot of time there, yet it's it's not foo foo. It's not just soft stuff. It's it's a very real results oriented approach. And what I love, though, is the optimistic side you can address the exact exact same data by talking about what's working, what has worked, what could work, um, versus just demeaning what do, or and, and focusing on what doesn't work. It's just what direction you're going to take the conversation, and it's up to us, right? Yes, we have the choice every single moment. Um, what attracted me to positive psychology and the research is, you know, I'm originally a computer engineer. Yeah. I love the data. I love the science. It's stuff we've been talking about in every major religious tradition to, you know, positive thinking. But what the science shows us is what what's the smallest thing that we can do to really, in a long-term way, train our brain to see the world differently. Um, and so, you know, I ended up 
leaving computer engineering, I went and uh, went into journalism, so much like you, and um, and was uh, empowered by this idea that we can share information that can help people. Um, the only thing is, I didn't get to choose my guests as you do. So yeah, darn it. <laughs> I was at, yeah, I was at CBS News as a, a national news anchor, anchoring two programs there, and the, the newscasts were unfortunately very negative. Right. Um, and then I came across positive psychology at the height of the recession, and so in the same style as this show, we invited in experts from that field to talk about ways that you can take control of your happiness in the midst of financial problems, talk about solutions, and we got the greatest viewer response of the year. And so to me, that was proof positive that people are hungry for the science. That it's not just about, hey, think positively, man, and everything's going to be okay. <laughs> I want to know exactly what I can do and what the tangible impact it will have. So now, you know, we work with... Um, large organizations, we uh, brought some of this research to Nationwide Brokerage Services, which is a wholly owned area of Nationwide Insurance, and they applied it pervasively in their organization. I'll give you a quick example. They did something called the morning huddle. First thing in the morning, sales teams got off the phone, which is how they make their sales, and they got together to talk about successes that everyone might not have heard about for the past 24 to 48 hours. And they also gave time for anyone who needed a little extra support that day to speak up and their colleagues would rally around them. Well, that change, along with a handful of other things, they attribute to increasing their uh, new insurance application rate by 237% and revenues by 50% in an 18-month period. Wow. And that's, not, and that's not a small 50%. That's to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. By so a meeting I, change. I, that's amazing. Yeah, by a, yeah. a meeting change. Well, and, and, a, and, a, and a very targeted approach. So... I mean, I think I think that's it. I think it's a it's something will naturally pay off. It's it's just, it's almost like you've got to retrain your your mind from doing what's natural and what might feel cathartic, like venting, to something that's more creative. So it might it seems like it might take a little more energy at first, but it'll pay off in the end. Absolutely, yes. Good stuff. Well. I, I appreciate you joining us, Michelle. As I've been looking all through your stuff, I'm, I'm, I've decided that we are going to have to chase you down again and have this oh, discussion. Wonderful. I want so much more because um, real-life tools, right, But and with optimism and positivity. So, Michelle Gielen, thank you so much for all you do, and keep up the great work. And, again, I can't recommend more um, this uh, her book, her website. The book is Broadcasting Happiness, and the website is michellegeelan.com. Michelle Gielen. Gielen is spelled G-I-E-L-A-N.com. We're keeping it positive, but, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a healthy realistic optimism powerful stuff we'll take a break folks come back to a little coach's corner this is the matt townsend show stick with us helping you uh, live a healthier happier life i'm ready to go in coach just give me a chance because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner play ball play ball welcome back friends you know, um, again, for some of you out there that uh, that really like being the pessimist, you might be sitting here thinking, this is just all too positive. I can't stand this guy. The reality of um, what what we're finding is, and remember, for years when we were studying psychology, we would study it through 
kind of a lens of abnormal psychology. We would only study people that had major, you know, abnormal issues or, um, it, you know, things that they were dealing with. We would we would talk and focus about those that would hear things, those that would you know couldn't couldn't keep a job, those that were constantly having problems. But what they found out is um, when you're studying psychology. It's just as important to study not just the broken side of life, but the success side of life. What what actually is producing results for other people? That form of study is called positive psychology. People that feel really positive in life do things differently than those that feel really negative in life. We think positivity is the norm. A lot of people would think, right? So historically, we would study the negative people, and we've got for years, you know, decades, a lot of information and theoretical approaches for how to deal with the abnormal, the negative side of of people's lives. However, people that are really have a lot of energy and excitement and joie de vivre for life, right? Um, Those people do something different than those that don't have the energy, that don't have optimism, that don't have flow, don't feel like they're living in a kind of an optimal life. That's all that our last guest, Michelle Gielen, was talking about. And I've seen it change couples, for example, incredibly. When a couple comes in and talks to me, they can talk on two sides of an issue. It's the same issue, right? So if the issue is about money which tends to be the number one thing couples say they can't talk about. You can come in and we can then spend the next hour focusing on the fact that we don't have money. And he spends the money and he buys video games and we don't even have time and money for it. And he should be working. And we talk about everything that doesn't work with the video game. Um, And that's where a lot of times the conversation goes. And we go there because we think we're going to solve the problem. That will solve it. By talking about what's broken, we will solve it. The downside to that part of the conversation, though, is it burns us out. And then all of a sudden, nobody has any more energy to deal with any more talk about money. And one way to blow that up is just then he might fight back and say, are you kidding me? Who bought a $400 purse? My video games only cost 50 bucks. I can buy eight video games for your purse. It's not a purse. It's a bag. And now we're fighting about purses and bags and video games. It's all on not just the negative side, but it's on the problem side is what I might call it. However, that's not what they want. What they want is the peace of financial stability. What they want is to know this person wants to know that they're safe financially. They want to know that they can talk about it and they're on the same page. So what I found is a lot of times you can cut through hours of fighting, hours of smoke, I call it, hours of starvation, if you would just start to listen for what they really want. When the wife brings up financial problems, what she really wants is financial peace. If she would bring financial peace as a discussion and we talk about how we can create more financial peace – and safety, and security, and a savings account, then we can start getting into the solutions. Instead, because we're so hurt and afraid and and we are scared, we start from the negative side, 
And then we have to dig ourselves out of the negative hole. Does that make sense? It's called, it's the appreciative approach. It's, it's not being positive. It's actually just talking about what you want instead of what you don't want. If you keep talking about what you don't want, you reinforce what you don't want. And amazingly, it appears. It self-fulfills. But if what you want is financial stability, if what you want is that we're on the same page, if what you want is that I want to see that we're both productively working together to get our money and, and we're saving it. Um, I want that we have similar values financially. Have those conversations. Well, yeah, it's easy for you, but you're not married to my wife who spends like crazy. Here we go. Make sense? It's not just a bunch of positivity. I promise. It's a bunch of productivity. It's more productive to discuss real life solutions on the on the positive side. It works, and it does a body good. We'll take a break, folks. Uh, Pretty powerful stuff. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your guide on the side, your life coach. Welcome to the program. Hour number three and the final show of the week. These are all true. Every fact you just said, and it's, we are, I will uh, back up. We are locked and loaded. Really? But not like a gun. Really? How other way could you be locked and loaded? Kind of like a, a decorating instrument that you use to decorate a cake when you load it and then you lock it with frosting. I was thinking a marshmallow shooter, but... Oh, same, that's even same better. Because, hmm. yeah, we don't advocate guns here. Okay. We're knife people. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Wow. Somebody died of a knife. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. that was bad. But, um, but, but Terry does like going to the knife show. He likes going to the knife show. Hey, we got a great show for you today. Wow. I'm losing it. I think it's because it's Friday. Yeah, yeah. You're a little... First I'm hot, then I'm the cold, then I'm ha- I'm having mm-hmm. hot flashes. Are you guys pa- playing with the heat here? Um, I w- no. I'm trying to lose five pounds by tonight. Is that why you have a sweat band sweat band on? Yeah, and that's why I'm wearing the trash bag. That's weird. Mm-hmm. Is it an age thing? What's I? I don't know. I think I'm having that change. Is it the change? <laughs> going through a change right here on the radio. One change at a time. Hey, uh, we got a great show. We're going to be talking about uh, the movies that are coming up with Rod Gustafson. Mm. And he, of course, is with Parent Previews. We've got to talk about Finding Dory. She's been lost. Well, she gets lost. She gets lost a lot. She's forgetful. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? And we're going to talk about the movie Central Intelligence. We'll be covering all of that. Plus, uh, you know, I think we're going to... We've got a lot of news to go over. Mm. We've got maybe a little Father's Day fun. Yes. A little game activity. Some facts about Father's Day you may not have known. Really? <laughs> Does it involve hot flashes? Um, no. Okay. That is more of a medical condition, and I would uh, Apparently. <laughs> suggest you consult a professional. Can somebody call for help? 
Um, we'll get to that. We've also got a lot of headlines, and who better to start off the headlines than Terry South? What's going on around the country, Terry? Thanks, Matt. USA Today reports President Obama reached a sad but remarkable milestone this week, having ordered flags to half-staff more than any other president in history. He reached that mark Sunday following the massacre at the nightclub in Orlando that left 49 people dead. That made 66 times Obama has ordered flags to half-staff. 14 of those proclamations were made in the wake of a national tragedy, accounting for 79 of the 158 days the flag spent a half-staff under Obama. George W. Bush ordered the flag lowered 58 times. Bill Clinton did so 50 times. The eight presidents before them only ordered the flag to half-staff an average of 10 times each. Wow. 66 times President Obama's ordered flags to half-staff. Man. Dozens of officials in the State Department reportedly signed an internal document this week calling for military strikes against Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's government as a way to impose regime change and to, de- uh, to defeat ISIS. Some 51 officials signed what is referred to as the Descent Channel Cable. This is a huge departure from U.S. policy, which has long sought to take side, not take sides in the war in Syria. The State Department is reviewing the situation. Mm. Donald Trump has hit a bit of a rough patch politically, so it's good news for him that leaders in his own Republican Party are keeping him at arm's length. A powerful group that was once an antagonistic towards Trump seems to be coming around to his side. Next Tuesday, Trump and the Republican National Committee are holding a joint $50,000 per plate fundraising dinner in New York City with hosts paying $250,000, according to an invitation seen by the New York Times. Attending, the Times says, will be a who's who of the financial world, including hedge fund billionaires and real estate magnates, uh, uh, Anthony Scarmanucci, I think his name is. is Scarmanucci. A he- he's a head fund executive, tells the Times that he expects 50 or 60 people to attend the dinner, and the Wall Street's resistance to Trump seems to be fading. Well, sure. they got to hedge their bets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. You. Um, a kid who ate his Pop-Tart into the shape resembling a gun will not have the resultant suspension removed from his permanent record. This according to a Maryland judge. Now 11 years old, Josh Welch, when he was in second grade, he nibbled his pastry into the shape. He said it was supposed to be a mountain. But it, Oh, a he, mountain with a clip? Well. Come on, Josh. It had a, a straight part and what looked like a handle, so he yeah. held on to it. There was no physical injury, and I think that they should be able to deal with a seven-year-old in-house, said the Welsh family attorney. He continues, it would be different if this was a 17-year-old and he was threatening physical harm. Yeah. School officials argue the child was playing with the breakfast food as if it were a gun, not a mountain, and that the suspension was based on a longer record of behavioral problems. Josh did, however, get a lifetime NRA membership out of the ordeal. Oh, good. And his case inspired legislation in Florida, which explicitly protects brandishing a partially consumed pastry or other food item to simulate a firearm or weapon. I was just playing with my food, and now I have an AR-15. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Yeah, it's really Holy quite crazy. Cow. And also, this new piece of technology, we may need to have that here as we're looking at the Zika virus coming in mosquitoes, possibly. The, an in, the Indian arm of South Korea's LG Electronics has begun selling a TV which features, uh, with a feature it says repels mosquitoes, which can spread disease such as malaria and Zika. No way. The TV Mosquito Away technology uses ultrasonic waves that are inaudible to humans but cause mosquitoes to fly away, according to the company. <laughs> it was released to the country on Thursday. It costs between $394 and $706, depending on the model. Do you want to make a little wager here? Go ahead. I will wager that 
those they'll hit the, those TVs will hit you know India, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden somebody's like parakeet is going to drop dead, <laughs> and then they're going to find out it's not just a mosquito repellent. They're going to find out those waves are doing something else. Could be. Apparently, it works when the TV is off. Also, well, good. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you probably could just like take your microwave and take the little mesh thing off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Work I, the same way. Yeah, maybe not. I guess that makes sense. Except now, the poor people again that can't afford the TV are just—I guess they get Zika. I, I guess. You guys want to come watch TV? I mean, I can't promise they're, you. They're probably more concerned with malaria. Yeah, malaria than Zika over in India. But it is a, an option, and if you want to import it, I bet you, you could probably find it. Yeah. I just want a remote that works. Yeah, me too. Or not to have 16 on And my... you can get one of those, is it a canela? Is that what they call it? Those burning candles that... Yes. Yeah, just get one of those. Yeah. You don't need to but they're buy saying an expensive TV. You could buy the TV instead of the candles. Well, you can buy the candle and just, it's cheap. Yeah, maybe you don't like the candles. Like me, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not into candles. My wife lights up candles, I go put them out. Do you? I'm like, what are you doing? Why does it smell like, you she's, know, She's baked trying bread to be romantic. She's like, hey. No, this is like at 2 o'clock on a Saturday. I'm going to light the canela. <laughs> really? The mosquito repellent. <laughs> what do you think? That's, I could just turn the TV on, on if you want. Um, anyway, interesting news. Did you hear um, about the irate, I, the irate beaver? Huh? Here's what I've learned. Okay. If I've learned anything. Uh, From on this the, show or on, just in on life? On this earth. Oh, okay. You do not want to tick off a beaver. Whoa. So a rogue, a rogue beaver struck terror in the heart of a man making his way home late at night. This is in Latvia, and this came to us through Latvian public broadcasting, which we're always watching because there's great information out of Latvia. Yeah, you, you can't limit your sources. And we, we actually have video of it that I'll, we'll be playing. Um, but basically, uh, the man, identified only as Sergei, says a beaver ran out of some bushes and subtly, suddenly bit him. Okay? And he fell over as he tried to fight the rodent off. But he was bit again. And he tried to get up. And the beaver, these are his words, held him hostage. Mm. Put tape over his mouth. Right. He's unable to speak. Yeah, that's it. I think the beaver's got his tail on his mouth. Okay. And he can't talk. So then he he tries to call his friend, and and he calls his friend on the phone. He's like, dude, you are not going to believe this, but I'm being held hostage by a beaver. And the friend's like, what are you talking about? And the friend tries to get to him, but then the friend gets pulled over by a, a cop. And then he called the cops, and the cops then went and found the guy, and he was trapped by a beaver. He couldn't get away from the beaver. Hmm. That was a busy beaver. Do you know what I mean? Was this just so you could say busy beaver? Is that the... No. Oh. It was just a busy beaver. A busy beaver. Okay. Uh, and the guy's just like, help. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Help. Jimmy, seriously. Help. So what do you think? Was he really 12, being held? Stitches. Was yeah. He, really? He, 
The beaver had him. You can't just overpower the beaver and no. leave hey, the premises? No. It was a rogue oh. beaver. A rogue beaver. Like, oh. I didn't think beavers were fast until yesterday when I did my research. Yeah, we did research on this. <laughs> and Beavers are fast, and they lead with their teeth. Okay. Remember that. It's like, <laughs> it's like a teeth-tail combo. Yeah. It's coming at you from both ends. That's crazy. It is crazy. Yeah. So... What's the lesson, hmm? Terry? Leave it to Beaver? No. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> Don't mess with a rogue beaver. Okay. They'll hold you hostage. Um, we also have to tell you this crazy story about breakups. I mean, I don't want to always focus on the negative. I don't. But I'm about to. Um, when you break up, you don't burn stuff in the driveway. Some people do. So a man burned a pile of his ex fiance's property in the driveway. <laughs> You're a monster. Totally. Right. And fire and, and started nearly started his garage on fire. It damaged it. Vermont police said at about one thirty in the morning. By the way, nothing good happens after eleven. No. I thought it was twelve. It depends on when the bad thing happened, and then you just go an hour before okay, it. Okay. So, go ahead. I think to you, for you, Ben, it's usually more like after three thirty in the afternoon. Um, nothing good happens after after eleven, and so these firefighters arrive at a condominium complex to find a burning pile of this lady's personal belongings. Heat and fire damaged the vinyl siding of the garage. Fire crews extinguished it. What are you supposed to do? You don't. The guy's now charged with third degree arson. Wow. Because of a fight, an argument. That escalated. That escalated. To a bonfire. Yes. Hmm. You always, always use a fire pit <laughs> to burn things. And don't do it in their driveway. You don't do it in a driveway. Go to a campground that has a fire, fire ring. And always leave. A designated burn area. With no coals in the fire pit. But see, here's the question. If you're trying to make a point... So it's more zero trace revenge is yeah, what you're talking we about. Want okay. Zero trace. So if if you want to be safe in burning these things but also make the point, uh-huh. is there an an option? Yeah, periscope. Yeah, you can face you can video it, either throw it up on Facebook or use periscope for hey. Twitter or just make a video and send it to her. Hey, ex Will that have the same impact you Upload think? it yeah. to YouTube and then send it to her and everyone she knows. Does this sweatshirt look familiar? Yeah. Huh? Huh? You remember your books? There's a safer way to do this. Remember your journal? Read it. Now burning it. Safely enclosed in a fire pit. Take that! (laughs) And periscope it. I mean, I don't want to teach people to do bad things. But if you're going to do bad things, I want you to teach it. I want you to do them the right way. There is the problem of you're documenting possible theft. Then what you say is, see this journal that... Allegedly is yours. See it? So allegedly you feel what I think if you throw it in there. All right. That hypothetically could be one that looks like yours. Mm, what if you. this journal was yours? Okay. Oh, like a question. Yeah. Like you're not even stating it. No. Or or if That's you go the great. Donald Trump way and go, someone told me this might have been Some yours. Some people are saying this is your stuff. I'm not saying it is. It works for him. But it does look like your stuff. But I'm not saying it. I can't know. I don't. I don't know. I'm not a forensic scientist. I'm just telling you. I don't. I don't want you to get charged with arson when all you're doing 
is a clean burn of your ex-fiance's stuff. So the moral of the story is there's a way to make a point and mm-hmm. be safe in doing That's so. That's right. And still be a good guy. Yeah. And you know what? Collect the ashes. Put them, Put in, them a in a box. <laughs> Take them to her. <laughs> Hypothetically. None of this information should be used. I'm just letting you know that. We're here to help one way or another. We will now take a break. When we come back, we are, we are ready to go locked and loaded like a marshmallow gun. And we are going to go to uh, Rod Gustafson, talk about movies. We then will be doing a uh, little game where we're going to talk about everything for uh, Father's Day. And then, of course, our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show and the hero of the day. We've got a lot to do. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, wrapping up the week in a nice big bow, nice present for you. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, it's Friday, and what that means is it's uh, time to do a little movie review with our film critic, uh, Rod Gustafson. He specializes in reviewing movies and media from a parent's perspective at parentpreviews.com. It's a wonderful resource for any parent uh, to be able to see what's in the movie, what really the kids shouldn't see or hear, uh, what parts are valuable, as well as some wonderful talking points. Rod, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us again. Hello, Matt. Thank you for having me. This is um, my favorite time of the week because it means movies, and this has been a big week for some releases. Finding Dory we're going to talk about today, and also Central Intelligence. Well, my prediction is this is going to be a huge weekend for the box office. I think both of these movies are poised to make a lot of money. Finding Dory, last night, it had some Thursday preview openings, and it set the record for the amount of money that an animated film has made on a Thursday opening, $9.2 million. And so now they're feeling like this movie is going to be a record breaker once again for Disney, who's been making lots of money lately. And you know what the good news is, Matt? We like it when a good movie is a record breaker, and this is a good movie. This is one we want to see make money. This is Ellen DeGeneres is Dory, that little blue, uh, (laughs) blue tang fish, I think they call it. Yes, the blue tang fish who has a short-term memory <laughs> problem. And what's really cool about this movie is that they take Dory's issue and they really look at how we deal with our imperfections and with our, you know, whatever you want to call them, whether they're, they're, they're learning issues, disabilities, physical, mental, whatever. But it does it in a really, really marvelous, positive way. There's some wonderful messages in here for kids, and it's an incredibly entertaining film. It looks absolutely stunning. It just we can't say enough good things about Finding Dory. This really is a beautiful film that they put together. Is it? Is this the one that they were comparing to? Like, let it go. It's going to be that big. You know, oh, it, I like it so much more than Frozen. I never was a Frozen fan. I'm yeah. sorry. Yes, no, this one, uh, this one, I think, has a much more, in many ways, a much more positive message. Um, I always felt the Frozen thing was just a little bit on the selfish side. Mm. 
This one's a lot more selfless. Hmm. This one's a lot more about what can we do to support one another and to help one another as we look at, because all of us have imperfections, Matt, whether we want to call them, uh, you know, learning issues or disabilities or whatever. And that's the beautiful thing about Finding Dory. It really has got some uh, some positive messages to it. I should tell you what the story is. Yeah, what is it about? It's, it's, a, it's a fish that can't remember things longer than 10 seconds <laughs> yes exactly but what she she gets prompted to realize near the beginning of the movie of course the inciting incident that she has a family and she's forgotten about her family so she wants to set out and find her family and hmm. they are way over on the other side of the ocean and so she wants to get over to california and try and find her family and try and find her parents I'll give it a little bit away. She finds them. And it's an incredibly touching moment in how all of this comes together. There are some wonderful characters in here. Hank the octopus. He's one of these octopuses that can can escape and get out of places and all that type of stuff. And uh, there, there really is just, it's imaginative and it's really quite fun. Great voice talents. I love Albert Brooks who plays the neurotic guy. father because Nemo and his dad are still in this Hmm. and Albert Brooks just does such a good job he reminds me so much of me don't go there it looks dangerous yeah yeah. Yeah, the protector talk talk about uh, your did you grade it what grades did it come out with and um, anything to watch out for in the movie well this one we're giving the big A grade to which you know we uh, Julie Rose on top of mind on BYU radio she often says to me Rod does anything get an A so we said, okay, this one's going to get the A. And uh, about the only thing to watch for in this is for really young children, there are moments of peril, which, I mean, is, is you know, you need some conflict in order to make a story work. And so there are a couple of mildly scary moments for, you know, maybe the under seven, under six crowd. For the most part, though, everybody else is going to be just fine. And for those little kids, just put your arm around them and tell them, don't worry, there's a happy ending. <laughs> it will be fine. Yes. It's great. Man, I, I, I want to go. Would, yeah. would my teenagers get into this? Oh, I think so. I, uh, I, I know a lot of, in my, in my church organization right now, I deal with a lot of what we call young single adults, yeah. and they're all excited about going to this movie. Oh, so, great. so, yes, I think it's going to have great broad appeal, and it's going to make a ton of money. That's great. Man, finally, like, and, and great values and, and an A from you, uh, Rob. This is a big deal. The other movie is Central Intelligence. Um, this has got uh, Dwayne Johnson in it. Also another big hit, apparently. Yes, this one is well. I think it did quite well on the Thursday screenings last night as well. Now, this is Dwayne Johnson pairing up with Kevin Hart. And, of course, Kevin mm. Hart has got that um, other <laughs> ride-along franchise going where he teams up with Ice Cube. Right. You know, that one, uh, it's never really warmed my heart all that much, partly because Ice Cube, he plays this scowly, frowny guy during the entire movie where he's Mr. Serious. Well, Kevin Hart's the, the funny guy. In this case, you've got Kevin Hart playing a little bit more of the straight guy. And Dwayne Johnson, I think Dwayne's just an amazing actor. You know, I used to poo-poo him in the early day, oh, yeah. in the early days where, oh, great, a wrestler. What does this guy know about acting? He has really come along and a really funny guy as well. And so there is very good chemistry between these two guys in this movie. And that makes it quite fun to watch for the first while. But, and unfortunately, yeah, this is, this is where it turns south uh, on us as far as family viewing. Yeah. A lot of profanity in this film. Uh, more violence than what they needed to have in it. And there's, you know, a fair amount of sexual innuendo and some crude 
discussion and that type of thing as well, which is really unfortunate because actually this is a film about bullying. And the, the setup, if you've watched the trailer, Dwayne Johnson's character, when he was in high school, he was supposedly a very obese guy. And, uh, and actually, it's funny, they, they have a scene of him dancing in a shower. And yes, there's a moment of rarity, as mm. we call it. But the person dancing is actually a guy by the name of Sion Maraschino, who is, who is this Tongan guy who is, he's very popular on Vine doing all of these dances. So they have him dancing with Dwayne Johnson's face digitally um, imposed on top of this guy. So it looks like Dwayne Johnson. Anyhow, long story short, he was bullied in high school. These two guys meet up 20 years later. Kevin Hart was the cool guy in high school. <laughs> now Kevin Hart's kind of, you know, he's a cubicle worker. Things are kind of dull in his life. And Dwayne, and uh, sorry, well, Dwayne Johnson yeah. plays the guy, but this Robbie guy come, shows up in his life, and now he looks like Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> and he's kind of the secret agent guy who pulls Kevin Hart's character into this uh, clandestine oh, cool. mission where they have to go out and, and do all of this weird, crazy stuff. The, the, the thing that you're doing throughout the entire movie, though, is you're wondering, can we trust Dwayne Johnson's character or can't we? Because the CIA wants him, and yet he keeps saying, no, I'm actually the good guy. The CIA is the bad guy. And so that's what you're trying Interesting. to do. Is, Interesting. Yeah. Is, are there lots of explosions and... Oh, yes. Mm. Lots, a lot of violence in this film, but not much blood. It's pretty sanitized because the... The whole purpose of the film is really one comedic setup after another hmm. so that these two guys can be funny. And that's good, but it's also bad because they kind of forgot to write the rest of the script. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. the story itself is rather lame, but if you like watching these two guys, you know, do the comic thing, that works fairly well. But as I say, expect a, a fair amount of profanity. And when I say that, it is PG-13, so there's one sexual expletive. But we have a lot of what we call scatological terms and some crude hmm. humor as well. What grade did you give that one? C grade on this one. So, Jeez. you know, a bit of a warning there to parents. Probably eh, on the line as far as whether you want your teens to go see yeah. it. It's definitely not for children. Good. Wow, Rod. Well done. Again, at least we know, right? Again, uh, Rod, thank you so much. You are welcome. Keep up the great work there at parentpreviews.com. Everybody, go check out their website, and, and you can see the reviews, but you also, I love the, the, uh, the, the kind of the questions and the information that you can use to have conversations with your kids about some of these movies. They, a lot of them bring up some pretty powerful ideas. We will take a break and uh, continue the discussion. Father's Day uh, quiz is up next. Stick with us, folks, helping you get ready for this weekend. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. I get a little teary. It's one of my producers choking because she doesn't like butterfly kisses. No matter how many times Ben tries to give her one. <laughs> no, that song just... Oh. Kaylee Danes joins us from the Danes clan. Yes. And uh, today we're celebrating fathers, right? Yeah. Which uh, we, we tasked our producer, Kaylee Danes. Kaylee Louise Danes. Uh, we tasked her to put together a, an opportunity, a game to educate us about Father's Day and also to still have a tribute to good old dad. Yeah. Yes. We love games here. So, Kaylee, uh, 
How do we play the game? All right. Well, I I don't know if you know that you do know this. What? I love trivia. Trivia is my thing. I did not know that. Yes, you did because I was retweeted by Jeopardy and it was a big deal in the office for me. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So I put together a little trivia quiz. Okay. Okay. That we'd play. I don't know if you know this. I am a highly trained professional. Did you go to the in Ken trivia. Jennings School of Trivia? Yes, I did. I tried to get in. I got a T-shirt. Uh, is Ben <laughs> playing? Um, he can. Ben, yeah. are you a father? Oh, I, well, oh, sorry. Do you so, have a father? Yes, I do. That does qualify him. Does your father ah. accept you as his child? Uh, depending on the day. Okay, see, so he's out. Okay. I uh, know Ben can totally be a part of it. Let's okay. play the game. All right. Question number one. Yes. Father's Day was proclaimed to be an official national holiday in 1966 right. by President Lyndon Johnson. But... Lyndon Baines <laughs> Johnson. Yes. I think. I don't know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but... But... It was celebrated well before that in 1910. It was the first celebration. Yes. Mm-hmm. In, wit- in what city was the first American Father's Day celebrated? Fathersburg. Final answer? Final answer for $500. And Ben, would you like to... Is that accurate? Ben, do you have an answer? Cleveland. Okay, you were both wrong. Fun fact, <clears throat> it is actually in my hometown of Spokane, Washington. Wow. Yeah, I thought that was super interesting. I was never going to guess yeah. that. Oh. Not, actually, you, yeah, that was, that's not a fun fact. I thought it was a great fact. Okay, that's right. good. All right, well, let's try again. Wow, Maybe okay. y'all are, are numbers guys. Okay. Yeah, maybe, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, in the United States, over $21 billion is spent on Mother's Day gifts. Right, right. So, $21 billion on mothers. $21 How much bill. should we spend on our fathers? Uh, $700,000. Okay. Do you want to guess again? Because that's wildly off. Okay. Tw- how many billion for women? Uh, twenty-one billion for moms. I'll say twelve point seven billion you for men. Stop my paper. I am disqualifying you from that one. Oh, Matt. It was right there on our paper. Okay, I need to twelve point seven. Notice that, but that is yeah, so significantly that less. That is so telling. Or maybe women are just more needy. No. Well, yeah, but no, they're just. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> Against fathers. Against fathers. Half actually, as much. I've actually been thinking about this for a while. I think you're onto something. I know. I'm onto yeah. it. Okay. I well, don't want to sound negative, but I am a father and a grandfather, and I have a father. <sighs> All right. Well, we're going to try this again. Okay. Give me another. Here's another numbers. Yeah. Okay. According to some stats, mm-hmm. Father's Day now ranks as number four in terms of sending greeting cards in, in the mail. Okay. Okay. So the... How many cards were sent in 2010? 19 and a half million. 19 and a half million. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll say more than that for $500. You yeah. <laughs> for $500. Uh, 96 million. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So that would go to me. Okay. Can I have a ding? <laughs> oh, ding. One, it's uh, one because you're disqualified. One to zero. So this is tight. <laughs> hey, it. last time I played this, I was negative. So Okay. Yeah. Then... So we're going to move down from trivia a little bit to okay. more famous fathers. Okay, okay, okay. And I made the trivia quiz, so yeah. it's definitely things that I like. Right. So we're going to go fathers. into some literary um, oh, brother. Okay. fun with this first question. Here we go, okay. So Atticus Finch, a noteworthy father We've in his own right. We've already done this one on the show. No. Yes, we have. Oh, I'm pretty sure. Then what's the answer? Well, Atticus Finch Scout. was the answer. Scout was the daughter. Okay, that's not what I was going to ask. What were you going to ask? What was his occupation? Lawyer. Yeah, he was a defense attorney. You guys are good. You went to high school then? He he was Uh, also really good at shooting. 
Okay. Double Good. ding. Good the, work. The double ding is for me. Okay. So, so Arthur Weasley, two, two father to, to Ron. Yeah. Okay. Ginny, George, Fred. Yeah. All the other gingers and yeah. Harry Potter. Ginger snaps. Belonged to which house during his time at Hogwarts? Gryffindor. Gryffindor. Good job, guys. I'm really proud of you. I only knew that because Ben said that. I thought so. I don't read those books about dark witchcraft. <laughs> All right. This one is going to prove to be a little difficult, I think. No, not really. So who are the seven key founding fathers of our nation? Oh, we've done this. John Adams. Thomas Jefferson. Paul Blart. Ben Ben Franklin. <laughs> okay. You got one. Um, Jay. He wasn't there, but George Washington. Don't we attribute him? John Hancock. Is he on the list? No. Um, oh, Peter, Paul, and Mary. <laughs> so you miss Alexander Hamilton. Oh, should be a pretty Alexander easy one. Alexander Hamilton. Right now. Yeah. Right now it should be. Yeah. Um, and then John James, Lay. Who? James Madison. James yeah. Madison. And John Lay. Is Jay on there? John Jay? No. No. So those are all fathers. And okay. Yeah. Um, I got a question for you. Oh. K Dog. Okay. You, we got about a minute, is all. Um, okay. Fathers. Just a little tribute to your dad. <laughs> He's a great guy in Cleveland right Columbus. now. Columbus. Columbus. Good old Papa Nono. Um, he's probably not listening. No, we'll send it to him. <laughs> okay. Um, just he's he's a good guy. He's a great guy. He he's takes the best care father of you. I've ever had. Well, he's the, he's the only father, you've, except for me parenting you. Here. No, uh, well, and I was you know found under the rock. We talked about that That's a while true. ago. So he, you know, he took me in. But you love him when I was young, and I didn't have anywhere to go, and I, I really appreciate him doing that. And you wish you could. And do I love more, him, and you love him more. And I hope he has a great Father's Day. We love all our dads. I love my dad. Hi, Dad. Ben, we love I'm your father. Dad. And, and Matt is my radio father. Yeah. Happy Father's Day. I am your father. From all of us. Thank you. Thank we you. love you. And grandfather. Thank you for loving me. Uh, we're going to take a break and go down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show and maybe bring a little of this fatherly love. Who knows? Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. A little uh, Ergenlander polka. Is that how you say it, Ben? Ergenlander. Right. It's uh, it's a it's it's a beer drinking polka that they allegedly allegedly use in Germany. Just we thought perfect <laughs> perfect music to segue uh, as we go down to our good buddies down there at BYU Sports Nation today. Uh, Jason Shepard, Brian Logan are sitting in for the for the uh, parents, and the kids have taken over the house. How are you, kids? Doing great, Matt. How are you? You guys gotten in trouble since mom and dad have been gone? Oh yeah, so much trouble. <laughs> Do you want to talk about it? Nope. <laughs> Ooh, it's private. It's one, of the, hey, it's one of those things, you know. Sometimes you get a little talking to, and yeah. uh, from the parents, uh-huh. uh, but then the kids just completely ignore it. Yeah, no, I, I totally. So I mean, that's just we're just taking it. We're, we're just following the lead and what we what we've seen throughout our lives. Yeah, you know what? Do you miss them? Because there comes a point when mom and dad are gone that you're like, I I wish they were home. 
Mm. Do you guys miss him like that? I, no, I do miss. I miss I, him. It's too too it's too early for me. Yeah, but yeah, Brian's like it just started. Yeah. We haven't even had the cops called yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, haven't even, we haven't even broke five items. We got so much to do. Hey, I wanted to do a little study with you guys. There was a poll that came out on Huffington Post about how men spend time, spend their time in the shower. Okay? And they surveyed a thousand people. Here's some shower music, by the way. And uh, I'm going to give you guys a little quiz. Not a quiz. I just want to know what you guys are more prone to do. Out of the 1,000 people, they found out that only 9% uh, surveyed take baths. And 88% end up showering. Don't wonder where the other percentage go. (laughs) Don't wonder. No no bathing? Yeah, don't don't, don't do the... Don't... Don't do that. So 9% take baths and 88% shower. The rest just, I guess, yeah, don't bathe. They they just use cologne. Uh, so here's some questions for you. Do you guys um, prefer, a, you know, shower or bath? Shower. Shower, 100%. Honestly, I don't even... Uh, like, some... once, you're, once, you're, once you're like 13, <laughs> or maybe even younger than yeah. that, bath, you're done with baths, especially if you're a guy. Right. I just feel like... Baths, baths are oxymorons, me because yeah. I get into the bath, I get into the water, I, I, you know, clean my body with soap, and yeah. then I rinse, and then I still, I'm, I'm staying in the water, sitting that in I your rinse. own filth. Yeah, like, it, just, <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. I'm like, I don't mind yeah. taking no bath. Nothing wrong with just sitting in your own filth for a while. <laughs> no, see, I, I watch a ton. I don't know if you guys are like this, but I, I'm completely hooked on like HGTV and DIY. Yeah. I'm like watching House Hunters constantly. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, so you would like Pinterest then? We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, these people go in and like they demand that they have a tub. And I just look at it as like a waste. Just give me a bigger shower. Yeah. I'm good. Yeah. You know what? I, I agree. Except I, the only time I would ever get in the bath is um, if I were sick and dying. Oh, oh. You know. <laughs> I was going to say, like, 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 are you trying to like – is it like a hot tub? Are you trying to – yeah, you know, no. Flush all of the. Are you trying uh, to like keep out, your or? organs that's cold? It. That's it. <laughs> to donate? <laughs> if I'm if I'm trying to save my organs for donation, <laughs> then I like a good ice bath. <laughs> that's the only time. <laughs> Remember that. No bath. No bath. It's all shower. I know. Here's the next question. Then, uh, do you guys use a bar of soap or a body wash? Both. Fifty-three percent of people use soap. Forty-four percent of guys use a body wash. Three percent still aren't sure what you're talking about. <laughs> It's all about the bar of soap. I use both. Do you? I yeah. only use the body wash when I'm out of the bar of soap. And by then, I'm using the – usually, the body wash is my wife's, and so it's usually a little you know, floral. Mm. Let me break this down for you guys. Um, <laughs> so I, I get in, and then I use the bar of soap first. Okay. I rinse off. Yeah. Then I use the body wash. You go next. double? Wow. You are clean. Wow. That's taken that's like extra credit right there. Mm. Someone's an overachiever. (laughs) You're cleaning right up, Brian. Hey, thirty eight percent okay, dude, tell me this. Shampoo and then do you use a conditioner? Yeah. So yeah, thirty eight percent only use shampoo. Twenty eight percent use the two in one combo Mm -hmm. shampoo and conditioner. Twenty-three percent use separate shampoos and conditioners. Yeah, I'm the twenty-three percent. I use separate. I use separate. The only time I use the two-in-one is when I stay in a hotel and I use the combo that they provide. Yes, mm. that's the See? only time. See, You're a good man, Jason. I don't. I don't use the hotels. 
You, you've thought it's just this. one less thing I have to bring on the trip. They, we get the travel ones, though, man. They go to Walmart and yeah, and I can still Target save a dollar by just using what they give me at the uh, Holiday Inn Express. Hey, that is true. It's like ninety-seven <laughs> cents. Actually, if you if you if you do separate like us, you'd be paying two dollars. Do, do you guys do you use um, do you uh, use any beard oils? No. Do you use any really expensive other products? I no. I I started going down the route of beard oils, but I have to shave my beard. Yeah, you need so. a beard. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty simple there, Matt. It's, yeah, uh, it's you're clean. Soap, it's uh, shampoo, conditioner, yeah. and uh, it's go time. Yeah, and then just a little blow dry, and then of course you got to make up. Get your makeup on. Wax your back. <laughs> no, that's no only, waxing. No, nope. nope. David Nixon's the only one who waxes. Oh, you don't need to tell names. Oh, that's all right. He knows that. Okay, he's okay. He knows he waxes. Yeah, he hey, <laughs> hey, what's going on? Oh, I was going to tell you. Cavs, what would you think? Real fast, i got to let you go. But Cavs, Steph Curry, was that a meltdown or what? Yeah, it was a meltdown. And yeah, it was a ticky-tack call, but it really it played no role in the outcome. Right. The Cavs were winning that game anyway, so him getting thrown out had nothing to do with it. Yeah, he shouldn't have been thrown out because it wasn't a foul. But he, he overreacted. Mm. And throwing throw his mouthpiece yeah. into the crowd ended up hitting somebody. Not that it caused any damage or anything, but come on, you're better than that, Steph. I'd love to get hit by his mouthpiece. And then you could sue him. <laughs> hey, throw it here. Steph, throw it over here. <laughs> <laughs> I could see you just jumping up and down. Brian, like throw it over here. jumping in front of someone to get hit by it. You're no. diving for his mouthpiece. Uh, who's going to win the game? The finals. I, I want Cleveland, but I just don't know how the, the Cavs go to Oracle and win a Game Seven. I just don't know. And how, how do you that win? Happens. How do you lose three in a row if you're the, if you're the Warriors? Yeah. Well, but you got to remember they did that to the Oklahoma City Thunder in the previous round. That's they true. They were down three to one and then won three in a row. That's right. So oh. they just did it. What would happen if that happens to them? Holy cow! And what would it say if the East won? Yeah. What? And, Lebr- hey, and LeBron would bring the first championship to the city of Cleveland LeBron in over James. 50 years. Huge. And they're going to need it because Donald Trump's coming in a month. <laughs> so they're going to have Huge. to build that community up. Huge. Before it's torn down. Huge. Hey, uh, what's on your show today, gentlemen? All right. Uh, kind of playing off of the Game 7 must-win, do-or-die, we're going to give it a little bit of a football twist. Sweet. It is a must-win game for BYU football. Here's the twist. You get to pick which BYU team all time that you want to use to play in that game. Oh, cool. That's a good twist. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's what we're going we're gonna to talk about. Also going to have Peyton Dastrup, uh, one of the newest members of the BYU basketball team, just got home from his mission in Panama. Sweet. Also, Adam Teicher covers the Kansas City Chiefs, and there are several Cougars on the roster, so we'll get an update uh, from him on those guys, and uh, we'll play a little hashtag this, so busy show. You guys, plus you're showered. And we're showered. That's great. You guys make it a great one. I know you'll kill it. You'll kill it. And let's just remember to stay clean. Always. Thank you. And Brian, thank you for not having a reference to deity during this segment. Oh, uh, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> we so, I so appreciate it. Today's Friday, right? Yeah. Today is Friday. I was, I was just going to say, you know, happy Father's Day and just reference, you know, the father of all fathers, Father Abraham. That's <laughs> wow. That's Father Abraham, who had seven sons. Yeah, um, and seven and, sons had Father Abraham. <laughs> I'm one of them. And so are you? So <laughs> let's just praise the Lord. Yep. Okay. <laughs> hey, happy Father's Day to you yeah. both, and yeah, uh, have a great too. show today. Thanks. Knock him dead, Father Abraham.
That's awesome. I was wondering when he was going to say something. He's such a religious man. He just always brings up God. That's great. Um, <laughs> hey, as, as uh, I got to tell you the story. How much time do we have? Yes, listen to this. So let's say you're a robber and you're going to go, you know, carjack someone. We, we do a segment on this show called Coaching the Con. And today we're going to coach the con. What you're going to do when they come for you, if you are a carjacker, so listen to the story. A guy pulls a gun on a man in Berkeley, California, and um, on, this was on Wednesday, then made off with his grandmother's car, okay? But before he left, so he pulled the gun on the guy, but before he left, he demanded to use the guy's bathroom. So listen, so... Imagine the violence, the aggressiveness of pulling a gun, getting a guy to give you his car. And then he's like, ah, thanks for the car. Uh, I am so embarrassed to even ask this. I'm sorry. Um, I don't want to inconvenience you, but would it be all right if I use your restroom before I steal your your grandmother's car? Oh, sure. Come on in. At least he was polite about it. He was very polite about it. He went in. um, They went in the apartment, still having the gun, by the way. The guy took his cell phone, he took his keys, and demanded to be allowed to go relieve himself. He got into the apartment, but Grandma was in the bathroom. So he bangs on the door, gets Grandma out of the bathroom. Then he made the victim, this guy, go in the restroom with him while he, you know, went to the the bathroom, gave the courtesy of letting the guy, hey, why don't you look away, went to the restroom, and then left with grandma's car that is crazy it was smart to go with grandma's car probably lower mileage yeah you want a more fuel economical car yeah if you're going to do a carjacking uh, just a little advice to all carjackers out there if you're thinking of uh jacking a car i would um i'd use the restroom first i'd probably also i wouldn't drink a lot of fluids uh before the carjacking well, it's important to be hydrated, but you should do that 24 hours before. Right? And remember, courtesy. Always courtesy. Man alive, what's happened in this world? Hey, if you've ever seen James Corden, um, who is the late, late show host, you probably have seen his carpool karaoke. I love watching it. We watch it uh, all the time here at work. That's how we make it through the day. And... Um, they just had they just shot one of these carpool karaoke's with the red hot chili peppers and the frontman the singer the frontman uh, Anthony Kiedis uh, who's the singer for Red Hot Chili Peppers while they were doing this they pulled over to have a little dance off with his bandmates and the late show host James Corden when suddenly a woman came out of her house holding a baby and screaming that the baby couldn't breathe Kiedis and others ran across the street to the terrified mom. They took the baby from her arms, and he said, I thought I'm going to try to do a little baby CPR real quick to see if I can get some air in this kid, he said. Keita said he tried to open the baby's mouth, but it was locked shut, so he just began to rub his stomach. Bubbles started coming out of the baby's mouth, and his eyes rolled back into place, and by the time the ambulance had arrived, Red Hot Chili Peppers' lead singer had saved this baby's life. The baby was now breathing. 
After all the excitement, the group nonchalantly went back to shooting the cari- uh, the carpool karaoke, which you got to go look up on on uh, on YouTube. It's it's hilarious. They don't show any of them pulling over to do the dance off. But uh, anyway, he said, when you're a dad and somebody yells, my baby, you jog across the street and you do anything you can. So Anthony Kiedis from Red Hot Chili Peppers, you're the hero of the day. And that is the show. We'll be back Monday for more ideas, more tools to help you uh, make it in this crazy thing called life. Don't give up. Have hope. And we'll talk again Monday. Take care. Make it a great Father's Day, by the way.